This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is brought to you by Thorne, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorne is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements, the tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the Products do what they say they're going to do on the label, and then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorne.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, 
you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast, and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Manny Vega. Now, Manny has an incredibly powerful story from the sexual abuse he received as an altar boy, his journey into the Marines and multiple line of duty deaths, his work in LAPD, the Rampart scandal, and then the loss of his son in Marine boot camp. So before we get to this incredibly courageous, transparent, and raw conversation, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 700 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So that being said, I introduce to you Manny Vega. Enjoy. Well, Manny, I want to start by welcoming you to the Behind the Shield podcast today. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. And I want to say thank you to Jeff McGreevy for connecting us. Absolutely. Uh, Jeff and I have been uh, longtime friends, you know, way back in the day when uh, I was a Marine, he was interested in going to the Marine Corps. And I, I believe I convinced him to go into the Marine Corps and then Somewhere in our, our paths crossed again, and uh, we both were uh, police officers for the city of Oxnard. Beautiful. We're going to get into that entire kind of um, chronological timeline. But before we do, where are we finding you right now? Where are you sitting? Sure. So I am in my office in Camarillo, California. Uh, I own a small business. It's called Anna Capital Industries, and it's the farthest thing away from uh, law enforcement or, or the military, as you could imagine. Uh, we sandblast and paint to keep it uh, very simple as far as what we do here. Beautiful. Well, going to your timeline then, I mean, you're obviously a California base. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure. So I was born in Ventura, California, 1966. That makes me uh, 56 years old. Uh I uh, was born, was raised in Oxnard, California, my entire life. Uh, my parents came from Mexico. They came from the Yucatan, and as as well as my brother. And so there's just uh, my mom, my dad. They're still alive, and uh, my brother, who's older than me. Uh, they all came to America. My dad came as what they call a bracero. I don't know if you ever heard that term, bracero. I haven't actually. No. Yeah, that's a nineteen. 50 term uh, where the United States government contracted with Mexico to bring in labor to work in the fields and the orchards. So that's how my dad came to the United States and uh, was able, able to uh, get his, uh, you know, immigrated here. My mother then came along, you know, with my brother and uh, I was, the, I was the only guy, I was the only one in the family born in the United States. How's that? 
Now, what was your dad doing prior to emigrating to the U.S.? Uh, you know, he was uh, he worked my grandfather. My grandfather had uh, was a machinist back in Mexico. And what they did was uh, in the Yucatan, I can't remember the name of the plant, but they make rope out of it. And so they, the, there's kind of a history in, in rope making there and then uh, went around doing, you know, s- selling pots and pans until he met my mom and, you know, got married and realized that he had to, uh, he wanted to come to the United States for a better life. Was the plant hemp? Was it hemp he was working with? No, it's not hemp. It's not hemp. It's it's something to, I can't, I, and I, 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 could, I could picture it. It's almost like an agave plant, you know, but something like that. Okay. Yeah. Cause it's always interesting. You know, a lot of these stories of people that have been on the show. I mean, obviously, I'm a first generation myself immigrant, um, but a lot of people are, you know, second or more. And, you know, some of these people had a very skilled career, whether it was in medicine, whether it was, you know, as you said, you know, machining, whatever it was. And a lot sure. of these men and women, it's fantastic that they get to come over here, but it's almost these wasted skills that are then put into the fields or lawn care or, you know, some of these more menial tasks. And I understand that language is obviously a barrier, but it's a shame there isn't a little bit more reciprocity for some of these professions. Yeah, no, he uh, he came over, um, you know, one of the things that he would tell me about uh, his time working out in the fields and so on, <clears throat> uh, he just... He just remember being treated uh, very inhumanely. How's that? He said that they were treated like cattle, and they're you know uh, bussed around, transported to different states uh, in the Union. Everything from Idaho to Washington, you know, parts of California, Central California. And he went around working just about in every type of orchard and picking about just every type of crop that you could imagine. Um, one of the things that he would tell me all the time, or he's, my dad's still alive. He's 89 years old, um, was that they would come up to him and in Spanish, um, kind of a, a, a way of saying, you know, that when they were, you know, picking the, the, the crops, they would tell him or they would yell at him, whoever was in charge of them, typically white white males, or even the Japanese who owned a lot of land out here in California, which we yell at them, uh, culito al sol, culito al sol. Culito al sol means, in, a, in, a, in other words, you're the butthole to the sun. You know, bend over and just pick. And so so my dad uh, and his and his brothers also, his brothers also came with him. And they eventually somehow settled here in, in the Oxnard Plain, those who are familiar with Southern California, where Oxnard is just right above uh, Los Angeles, north of Los Angeles, south of Santa Barbara, uh, very fertile uh, soil out here. And they settled out here and they started a carpentry business. And so they became carpenters and that's how they got out of the fields. But, I, but, I'm, but I'm glad you asked me this question because it goes to my son, Patrick. Um, I... I would tell my son, so listen, abuelito or grandpa had two feet in the field. I myself have one foot in, one foot out. I said, you have two feet out of the field. So make something of your life. And I would tell him that quite often. So he wouldn't forget where we came from. Beautiful. I think some of these backstories are, are very, very powerful. I mean, whether it's 
on, on a negative perspective as far as some of the trauma, the multi-generational trauma that so many people kind of accrue, especially in the uniform professions. We focus on what we see and do when we're working, but we forget about what happened to us before we put the uniform on. But also, you know, the learning the rest of the world and learning sometimes there's this extremely positive immigration story where they were welcomed with open arms and they had mentors and they were, you know, given a trade. But there's obviously the dark side of that as well. And it's interesting with the, with the racial uh, conversation most often is discussing African-American. But you look at Irish and Mexican and, you know, all these, you know, Korean, all these different immigrants that have come as this beautiful tapestry that is the U.S., the, you know, that that word racism is you know is a very very deep wide spectrum. Yeah, no, and, and interesting enough is that uh, uh, a lot of the and again, and I'm not getting political or or, or being negative on anybody, but just uh, a lot of the uh, agricultural land out here in, in the Oxnard Plain, Ventura County area, and even further out, uh, a lot of uh, Japanese families own the land. And so in World War II, they were sent to the internment camps. And so when they were released, they had their lands back. And now you had the Mexicans coming in as labor working for the Japanese. And the Japanese were treating the Mexicans as though they were in internment camps. But it's just, it's just, a, it's just you know, how human beings are, I guess. You know? Yeah, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Exactly. All right. Well, then, as your childhood, tell me what you were um, playing or doing athletically, because you ended up obviously in the military and then law enforcement. What were the things that were forming you physically and mentally as a child? Right. Um, so as a child, uh, as, as a child, my my dad, like I said, uh, worked the fields, eventually owned his own business. So he was, you know, uh, he worked a lot, you know. Um, my mom at the same time, uh, was working in a packing house. So she would work either all day or all evening, you know, uh, the term key latch kid, my, my brother and I were certainly key latch kids where, um, my mom would make food, you know, leave it on the stove. We'd come home from school, we'd warm it up and we'd eat. And then we were basically on our own till they, they got home. Um, we lived in uh, a place in Oxnard called La Colonia, and La Colonia is predominantly a Mexican neighborhood, probably one of the roughest parts in Oxnard. We lived in the projects, <clears throat> and when I say the projects, you know, this is government subs subsidized housing, uh, little concrete boxes, uh, and so all around us, uh, there was a lot of drug use, a lot of gang violence. Uh, you know, it wasn't the best place to grow up, but as long as we stayed in our in our little confined neighborhood, we were okay. Um, I, I want to say that I probably saw my first murder by the age of 10, just right, right, right across the street, which is horrific. Uh, police activity all over the place all the time. You know, the cops are always chasing the homeboys around. Um, so it, it was always around back in the, back in those days, uh, the guys uh, would sniff either and they would sniff paint. So they would take a, a, a sock and they preferably sniff either gold or silver paint and they would spray, spray the ins one sock, uh, you know, either gold or silver, take the other sock, roll it up and they would stick that sock in her mouth and inhale that tolly. 
and they would just walk around like zombies. And 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 I just you would find these, you know, paint soaked socks everywhere. And you'd see these these guys just, you know, that they're just, you know, their brains are mush just walking around. And, you know, heroin was big then. And it, it but I remember all that. I again we stayed away from all that because we spoke predominantly Spanish. Spanish was my first language. I didn't know how to speak English until I got into the first grade. Um, but that was the that was the atmosphere around what I grew up. My family, my parents, seeing that they, um, you know, they 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 decided that you know maybe the safest place to raise the children was uh, you know uh, at the Catholic Church. You know, so they they my dad worked really hard, was able to get us into parochial school. Um, and then uh, at the same time, and you know, when you kind of hit second grade, you're at that age of second grade. That's when you're allowed to, you know, start helping the priest in Catholic mass as an altar boy. I guess now nowadays they call them altar servers. And so that kind of led into, you know, something else. You could only imagine. Well, I mean, if you're okay with it, we talked about it before. You know, I think I touched Absolutely. on it about what happens to us before we put the uniform on. I'm six years deep on this podcast now, 700 interviews as, as we sit here. And the the sobering realization how many of my peers in uniform had had a significant amount of trauma. I mean, I had trauma in my life, but was very, very fortunate with basically an equal amount of, of by accident, very positive, you know, ways of offsetting it, coping mechanisms and, and nurturing elements. But it makes so much sense. We have, you know, so many people in our profession that are either in departments that don't see or, you know, or, you know, we're in uh, members of the military that really didn't go to combat or people are very early in their career and we see them absolutely crumble. So this conversation about what happened to us before we ever put the uniform on, I think is imperative. So if you're willing to tell the story, then please go ahead now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so from the age of 10 to 15, uh, I was sexually abused by a Catholic priest. And so when I say sexually abused, you know, that, that kind of throws a blanket over the acts that were performed on me and everything. But you need to stop and take that in, understand what sexual abuse is and, and everything that comes to mind that uh, from digital penetration to fondling, uh, to caressing, to masturbation, to oral copulation, to sodomizing somebody. I mean, put it this way, I lived through all of that. The uh, the grooming part of it, uh, the confusion of, you know, hey, you know, my parents don't want me out in the street where there's danger, you know, hey, come over to the church and be safe. And next thing you know, um, this one priest, uh, Father Fidencio Silva, uh, he's from the Missionaries of the Holy Spirit and was assigned here in Oxnard to Our Lady of Guadalupe Church. Uh, was in charge. Was put in charge of the altar boys, and he was a a younger priest. And so all of us kind of gravitated towards him because he was fun to be around with. You know, I step back obviously now in retrospect and look at what was occurring. You know, the whole reason it was fun was because he was, you know, totally grooming us of a group of about 60 altar boys that he was in charge of. I would say uh, over 40 that I know of 
were sexually abused by this man. So, I mean, the guy was a monster, fucking monster. And unbeknownst to my parents, you know, my parents thinking that, hey, this is the best place for you to be, there was a whole different thing occurring. And I can't blame my parents, and, and, and I don't. And it's just, it was just the situation at the time. You know, this is the best that they could do for my brother and I. Luckily, my brother, you know, uh, his contact with him was um, not as much as I was because he was he he didn't like him. So, but he did, was abused by him as well. Uh, and so, you know that that takes place. Um, you know, all the, the abuse is kind of like, uh, it, it starts off like, hey, you know, uh, let's kind of go hang out. And we, the next thing you know, hey, let's start, you know, young boys, you know, we start wrestling and roughhousing. The next thing we're, 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 we're wrestling with each other. And then he starts saying, hey, well, let's kind of do like the Romans did and let's get into our underwear. You know, and, and back then there was, and even nowadays, there's something called Lucha Libres. You ever, you ever, you ever watch uh, Nacho Libre? Uh, Nacho Libre, there yep. you go. Yeah. yeah, exactly. You know, so here you got a bunch of young boys, you know, thinking they're, you know, Mil Mascaras, not Nacho Libre because it wasn't around then, but Mil Mascaras and all our other heroes and we're wrestling around. And then he would take his clothes off. I mean, completely off and says, hey, I'm on a rush like a Roman. And here we are wrestling with this grown priest, you know. And he's grabbing you, you know, my privates and so on. So it, it at that point, it wasn't like, oh, well, this is kind of weird, but it was kind of the norm, and he made it feel like the norm. But then things escalated. I mean, at one point, uh, I remember he called me. He called for me. Again, I, I was going to the parochial school. I think I was in the seventh grade. And and the principal, the nun, uh, Sister Mary, oh boy, I can't remember her last name now, but she came in and says, hey, Father Fidencio would like to see you uh, in the sacristy, which is behind the altar in the church. So I'm like, okay, well, there must be like a funeral mass or something that they need an altar boy to help with, right? Or anointing of the sick, we would go and, and you know, we'd help them out at the hospital. So I went there and, and he uh, says, hey, you know, I'm, uh, he meets me and says, you know, I'm painting this picture for uh, for Easter, uh, you know, this upcoming Easter of a rising Christ. And I need you to be my model. Like, excuse me? Like, yeah, you know, I need you to be my model. I'm like, OK. And I kind of had heard the other boys had modeled for him. And this is like I'm in seventh grade. So I, how would that make me? Probably about, I don't know, 12, 13, maybe. I'm like, okay, well, that's, you know, whatever. And and so I go up there and, and he has a whole, I remember his camera on a tripod, uh, asked me to take my clothes off. I just took my clothes off to, to my underwear. And he goes, no, no, I need you naked all the way. And then he just proceeded to start taking pictures of me, touching me. Uh, just, and at that point, something clicked in my head. Like, you know, this, this is kind of weird. This is not right. And, uh, he then starts telling me that he's working on a on a sex education book. So then he starts telling me, "Hey, you know, you gotta. I need to see your penis hard. I need you to masturbate." And and he's like taking pictures of me as he's telling me all this. And then he's like, and then you, I could hear the recess bell ring. I could hear all the all the all the kids come out of school. You could hear the thumping of the basketball. This was very very vivid to me still and he's demanding that i masturbate and that i come 
And I'm, I'm thinking, and and I'm in the the sacristy, which is part of the uh, the church building, which is sacred. You know, and I'm thinking, what am I doing? And that that was probably like one of the the that was like one of the times, like you know, this dude's like sick or something, and. I just kept on turning around. He kept on turning to me and taking pictures of my penis, being masturbating. It's like I weirdest thing ever, most uncomfortable thing ever. And, and at that point, I think that was like one of the very last times that you know that that, that I allowed myself to be alone with him. But yeah, I mean, but it, but you know, here I am, fifty six years old, and, and I could close my eyes and I could remember this, you know, in, in great detail and just how disturbing I, how disturbed I felt then and how disturbing it is now as, a, as an adult person. Yeah. Well, and it's so heartbreaking. And firstly, thank you. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a horrendous thing to have to recount, but it's an uncomfortable thing to hear. And that's why people need to hear it. I think one of the sad, you know, probably truths about this is that maybe some people aren't prepared to hear a son, a daughter, you know, a nephew, a niece, whatever it is, say What's going on? You know, it's easy just to ignore it and, and, and pretend it doesn't happen. I've had, as I said, so many people on here. Um, and a lot of times there's fear, either fear of, you know, actual physical harm from the predator or fear of not being believed. You know, they're not going to believe me versus this priest, for example. Who's going to believe me? I'm a 13-year-old kid. What was it that was stopping you from telling your parents during this? And then what was the the, the final in a point where you realize you need to remove yourself from the situation? So telling my parents what, put it this way, it was such a norm, right? It's such a, so he made it so normal that it did, and, and it, it didn't seem wrong. And then I know that sounds crazy and people that no, are, are going to listen to this, like, how didn't you know? Well, when you got, when you have the world around you, you know, just crazy, which I, I, I kind of described a little bit of what was around my world. The other thing, too, that was happening in my family was that my dad at the time was drinking, was beating my mom. Uh, I, I, I can't tell you how many times, uh, you know, I, I remember just laying in bed and just hearing the fighting. I remember my mom being bruised, you know, bloodied, um, horrific things, you know. But and, and again, I'm, I, you know, I, my both of my parents are still alive. They're both married. They're still married. Um, those memories don't fade or go away. They're they're very just right below the surface. Um. But somehow they they've seemed to, you know, here they are. They're God, I don't even know. How, they got married in '62, so whatever, however long that is, you know, they they've made it this long, and you know, they're they're they still live with each other, you know. And I'm sure my dad has a tremendous amount of guilt, you know, over what took place, you know. Um, but somehow, I, all of that growing up, uh, how can how do you how do you tell your parents that something weird? Again, he didn't make it as weird the abuse. I mean, there was even times that uh, he would say, "Hey, do you guys?" Because Hollywood is literally, uh, you know, fifty, sixty miles south of here, less than an hour. He goes, "Hey, you guys want to go to Hollywood? Like, what are we gonna do there? Well, let's go look for some girls." This is a priest telling us. We pile in his car. And he got a bunch of 
13, 14 year old, you know, horn dogs going down with a priest to look for girls on the Hollywood Boulevard. But what ended up happening, we ended up looking for fucking gay guys, excuse my language, but no, you're fine. Gay guys. You know, and nothing wrong with gay guys, but, but, but I mean, but that was what he was doing. And we were, he was parading this around. We had no, no concept of that. I mean, we would end up at Zuma Beach. There's some nude beaches out there. Like, hey, let's go look at some naked girls at the nude beach. And we're like, pile in his car and we go to the nude beach. But, you know, a bunch of nude guys out here. But he, he'd convince us to get nude and all these guys would be checking us out. It was just the weirdest thing uh, that, that, that I obviously, <laughs> it's just a weird thing. But that's what happens when, um, you know, you got key latch kids. That's what happens when, you know, you, you have uh, families that are immigrating from Mexico or other parts of the country that are not as sophisticated as, as he was as an educated man. He knew exactly what he was doing. What it reminds me of, uh, Tamia Naj, she's a Hungarian who was uh, sex trafficked and I had her on the show. Ultimately, she was, uh, she was rescued and she works with a group called Deliver Fund who are amazing. But when you hear of her story, you know, the, the average ignorant person, myself included, thinks that sex traffickers, you know, a white van comes by, that slides the door open, they fling the girls in and, they, and they yeah. off they go. It's not. It's a gentle grooming. And as you said, they're not targeting usually the well-educated, more affluent groups. They're targeting the more desperate groups where, as you said, their baseline may already be a little bit skewed on what should be normal. And then, uh, and then I had Cara Smith, who's from Deliver Fund as well, was saying the same thing. Like a lot of the, she made an excellent point. When you look at homeless people uh, that are, you know, panhandling, you don't see young girls very often. And she said, for, what will happen is they'll be out for a bit and then someone will take them under their wing and they'll gently be coerced. And then the next thing, you know, they're usually tricked financially and now they've got to pay money back and it begins the, the spiral and or obviously addiction is the other thing. So, you know, when you hear about these cases and, you know, I, I'll be honest, my son wanted to join the scouts and it terrified me and I and we didn't because of all the horror stories. But one of some of my good friends are scout leaders in the scouts who I would trust with my child. But these individuals have soured, you know, a religion, uh, a church, a, a scout movement, um, even martial arts. I had a guy on who was a bouncer who we revered as an author as well. And on the show, I'd never heard this. He told me, you know, and he, he'd come out and said it recently, but he was molested by his martial arts instructor. You know, so these people that we trust with our children you you can't wrap your child in bubble wrap, but at the same time, you have to do your due diligence to make sure that this individual, regardless of what umbrella they hail from, that individual themselves is trustworthy and accountable. No, absolutely. And and, and, and you brought up a point. Uh, um, so much I want to say about this. <laughs> um but it, it it's 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 the complacency. Okay, that that allows this to fester, and and this kind of again segues into what we're talking about as far as my son's death in Marine Corps boot camp. But it's the complete people. Other priests knew that having young boys in his bedroom spend the night was probably not the right thing. But did they ever say anything? No. Did this other priest have some what I call some wood to burn on them? Probably. Okay. Same thing, my experience as uh, maybe as a police officer, 
you know, complacent. You might know about something, but you don't want to say anything because you made a mistake or you're just as dirty as the next guy. And same thing goes with, you know, scouting. You know, a good scoutmaster might know somebody, well, you know, you know, Billy Bob over there might not be the best scout leader, but I kind of heard something, but I don't want to get involved. And, and, and so by being complacent, I think we're all at fault for allowing some of this stuff to go on. And, 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 and that kind of goes, again, into the topic that we're going to talk about here, I guess, further in, right? Yeah, there, is a, there is a level of complacency that, that, that does allow uh, some bad shit to happen. Absolutely. So you're going through this, the, that, that horrendous back of the church photo shoot was the last draw. Did you walk away from that point then? I didn't. I did not because it wasn't until I graduated from uh, eighth grade. We graduated. I went. On, I moved on to high school. That's when I started breaking ties. That's when I saw him less. I was further away, um, and I and I kind of ch- chose to do that. At the same time as this is happening, um, the guys in the neighborhood are kind of starting to be more of an influence. And so I don't want to say I grew up as a gang member, but I associated with gang members. And when you live in a neighborhood and that's all you know, right? That's all you know, then how can you not stand up for your neighborhood? Well, especially right? if you've been preyed upon as a child, you're going to have that subconscious yearning to be protected. Yeah, absolutely. And these guys kind of protected. But, and so we ended up moving out of the neighborhood into another part of Oxnard. And when we moved into the other part of Oxnard, uh, the West End of Oxnard, well, they had their own Hispanic gang there. They knew that we came from the East Side. And so those, um, you know, they would drive by and flash gang signs at us. And we flash back, you know, our signs and, and you know, and just the shit talking that went on. Again, never believing that it is escalating to anything. This is now, you know, I'm probably 15, 16 and I tell you what, uh, those two years, I want to say that uh, I survived three drive-by shootings. Yeah. Uh, the first time was a guy that came by in his car in his uh, 63 Impala. Uh, he flashed his sign. I flashed back. He made a U-turn, came around, and pulled out a, sh- a sawed-off shotgun and chased me down the street. I was able to... Uh, like I went running down the sidewalk. I slid underneath the car. I literally fit underneath the car. He stuck the shotgun underneath there and he pulled the trigger and both barrels went off and I didn't get, I didn't get hit. Uh, and I'll tell you that out of all my encounters where I, where I've been shot at both in the Marine Corps and as law enforcement, that's the one that gives me the worst nightmares to this day. Uh, then another time, right after that, uh, we were standing by somebody's house. Another car came by, lit up the entire area that we're, we were standing at. You know, a lot of gunshots impacted. And then the, the last time was, um, I, and I think this was certainly the uh, the turning point for me. Uh, I was at home watching TV. My brother was out. I don't know what my brother did. But whatever my brother did, they came to the house. They knew where we lived, and they just lit up the house, like 60 rounds impacted into the house. And everything impacted around me. 
windows were shot out, TV was shot out, uh, bullet holes into the uh, to the vehicles that were parked in front of the house, bullet holes into the couch where I was sitting. I didn't get hit. It was right about that time. I was like, you know, screw this, man. I What am I freaking doing? And believe it or not, a neighbor across the street, uh, he used to go surfing all the time. And I, I, I don't know why. But soon after that, I was like, man, can I go out there with you? And I started surfing. <laughs> I went from the barrio to the beach. And I'll tell you what, and I, and I fell in love with the ocean. Fell in love with the ocean. I, 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 I don't know what clicked. I don't know what turned, but that was uh, – that was a turning point, you know, I, I, and, and I knew at the same time that I just needed to leave and get away because I mm. somehow I knew that I, I, I wasn't going to survive long if I stayed in town. And uh, at the age of 17, I joined the Marine Corps. Well, just to get a perspective of where you grew up in this, you know, veterans eyes that you have now, you've got a military career under you, you've got you know, law enforcement and, you know, in LA, so not, not like you were working in Pleasantville. When you look back at that dynamic, one of the things that I've talked about a lot on the show, what I saw with my own eyes in, in uh, the Orlando area, in Anaheim, California, you know, the gang violence, the drugs, the prostitution, etc. I saw, my personal opinion, the horrendous ripple effect of drug prohibition, what that has done to this country and how by driving all the, the power into the underworld, we've created so much violence, both sides of the border. Sure. When you look back now with, the, with your perspective and your wisdom, what we, would you identify as some of the root causes of that near warlike neighborhood that you grew up in? Well, number one, I, I, I well, when I grew up, right, it was certainly, uh, I, I think it was a, uh, you know, here, here my parents come from Mexico. What do they know? You know, they're coming here for a better life. They're, all they know is that they need to work hard. So the level of sophistication was like, hey, you know, come here, work hard, and, and you get ahead. Um, and so not that they were bad parents. I, I think what it was, it was just the atmosphere around us that, um You know, does it does it go back to drugs? Does it go back to incarceration of people? Does it go to all of that? You know, it's it's hard to say. It's it's just it's it's just the cultures what you know. I remember working. You know, you mentioned I worked uh, LAPD. I worked LAPD. I worked ramp the Rampart Division, and pretty you know scary place. <laughs> it's a pretty damn scary place. Uh, I remember we went into a neighborhood and anytime we went into this neighborhood uh, we had to roll in there with three cars minimum dangerous neighborhood uh, we rolled into this neighborhood and i remember and i can't remember what the call was but we were in this neighborhood and there was a young kid that was playing with the basketball and, and everything was kind of you know code four we're just kind of hanging there and i was talking to this little kid and you know we we're kind of throwing the ball back and forth, you know, just talking, right? Hey, you know, what's your name? What are you doing? His mom came up, took the ball away from me, and told her son, never talk to the fucking pigs again. And the kid went away. So, and I remember that. And, and, and I think to myself, you know, how, how do, why does she feel that way? And so it must have been some sort of negative experience 
you know, growing up, seeing some family member get manhandled by the police. Uh, I mean, I remember, I remember, uh, you know, again, like I said, you know, we, we, we grew up, we used to go cruising on a, an Oxnard place called Savior's Road and it had a curfew, you know, and at 10 o'clock, you know, if you're not 18, they would stop you, impound your car and throw you in, you know, in jail. And act, that actually happened to my brother and I. We both got hooked up, manhandled, slapped around, literally, you know, by a couple of white cops and thrown under. So that didn't leave a good taste in my mouth either. But but I but I could see the result of that. As far as the drugs, you know, back then, you know, it was weed and maybe heroin and stuff like that. But not like it is now. Now it's out of control. I, I have friends that work for ATF and DA along the border, and man, what's happening now is just you know, not like nothing like we've seen before. Yeah. I mean, not to kind of beat a drum that I beat a huge amount in this podcast, but just to summarize, we've had the war on drugs almost a hundred years now. And I would say, put my hand up and say, it's been an epic failure and we need to think of some different way of approaching it. No, I agree. I agree 100% with you. Back when I was a police officer, man, I would say, Hey, you know what? Freaking legalized marijuana tax the crap out of it. You know, send the money to the schools. It's like, you know, they do with alcohol, you know, they, they regulated. You're going to end all the crap that comes, you know, across uh, the border. You know, uh, I'm not, you know, as far as there's certain drugs that I would not, you know, allow, you know, uh, to be regulated. But uh, but again, I, I, I think you're right. I, I think you're on to something there. And I think it's it's just, uh, you know, money makes the world go round. And, you know, you just got to follow the money trail. Boy. And when you talk about that. Uh, yeah, I, I won't go into that, but yeah, there's just follow the money trail. How's that? <laughs> All right, well, I'm sure we'll find ourselves around there in a second, but let's just kind of backtrack um, time wise. So, you join the Marine Corps. Now, the latter part of this conversation obviously is going to be a tragic death in the, you know, the boot camp phase of uh, you know, a, a kind of on ramp military process. Talk to me about your own personal experience with some of the line of duty deaths as you progress through your Marine career? Yeah. So my Marine career, um, I joined the Marine Corps with a little knowledge of the Marine Corps. The only really thing that I knew about the Marine Corps was, uh, that John Wayne movie, the Sands of Iwo Jima, you know, where he played Sergeant Stryker. That was about it. I, I, didn't know much about the Marine Corps, only that it was um, a challenge. It was, you know, a hard thing to do. And I guess I had something to prove and I wanted to prove myself. So I, uh, at 17, I enlisted. My parents um, had to sign the waiver for me because I was of age. Uh, I remember the recruiter coming over and speaking Spanish and telling him, well, your son's going to do it one way or the other. Why don't you just sign for him now? And so um, I graduated high school, and I would say within a week, I was gone to Marine Corps boot camp. Um, and uh, I was in the infantry. Uh, they, at the time, uh, this is 1984, you know, Lebanon was going on. So they, they sent me from the West Coast to the East Coast, and I ended up with the 2nd Marine Division out there. Um I ended up, uh, interesting enough, I ended up serving with uh, with, a co- uh, with Lima Company 3-6. Uh, 
uh, Lima Company 3-6 at the time was uh, based out of Camp Lejeune. By the way, I'm a Camp Lejeune Marine that you, you know, if you listen to those, all those damn commercials, I'm one of them. Uh, is that, disaster. when you, when you, because I keep seeing my email is full of Camp Lejeune lawsuit, um, you know, emails. So this, this, this side note for a second, talk to me about being from that, that era. Well, I, I was there from 84 to 88. I, I guess I must have bathed, drank, ate, you know, did everything with this, uh, with this, uh, groundwater that was contaminated. You know, I, from what I understand, I, I remember the VA, the Veterans Administration, uh, I got a letter back maybe 2000, as early as 2011, 2012, notifying me that I was exposed to toxic chemicals and as if I had any of these cancers. And when you look at the list, I'm like, Jesus, I want nothing to do with that. And so then um, I remember going to the VA sometime after that. And as I was checking in, you know, the uh, the guy at the VA says, "Oh, you're one of those Camp Lejeune Marines, man. You're you're head of the line privilege guy." And I was like, "And I was like, fuck you, man. I I I want nothing to do with that, you know." But I I know a couple guys from my platoon. Again, I'm 56. You know, we're we're all getting to that age. I know a couple of them are are having issues, cancers and uh, issues with uh, um, uh, neurological issues. Which is frightening, you know. I, 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 again, I don't want any of that. You know, it's just crazy. But, uh, but again, that that and that segues even into the further into the conversation that we're going to talk about because uh, with the recent PACT Act that was passed, right? That PACT Act that was passed for the toxic burn pits, for uh, the toxic water Camp Lejeune, and for uh, what took place in, in Vietnam with Agent Orange, that the PACT Act covers all that. And there's language in there that uh, that is uh, that I see it now in my cause that is that is very harmful. It did some good, but boy, it's uh, things that are, that are happening right now are not going to help what we're trying to do in the long run. Yeah, my father-in-law was exposed to Agent Orange, and he had numerous cancers. So, I mean, he, yes, he had a financial cons- compensation, but physically, he's paid for it. Yeah, yeah, and, and that's yeah. So that, that that's also another part of something that hangs in the back of my mind, like geez, you know. And now that you know, you, you see this more and more. The reason you see all these attorney firms, you know, is because again, in, in July-ish, you know, they signed the Pact Act. You know, compensating. But what's what's interesting is that uh, if I understood it correctly, if you're to go to one of these law firms, if you're a veteran from Camp Lejeune and you're to go to one of these law firms and you're receiving your VA benefits, the way it's set up is that if the law firm gets you some sort of compensation, that compensation will be deducted from your VA benefits. It's not a double dip. It's not a double dip. And and veterans really, really, really need to understand and look at it. And I do a lot of work with the American Legion uh, at a national level and a state level. And, yeah, they're they're very much aware that, holy crap, you know, there's some of these, you know, uh, 
Marine veterans, uh, Army, Navy, whoever was there at the time are going to get stooped over, you know, uh, think they're going to get a payout. But the, the payout's going to, you know, again, don't forget, you know, your attorneys will get 40% plus everything else. So it's not what you think it's going to be. I would say just stick to your VA benefits, man. You mean they're not doing it because they're kind-hearted altruists? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, um, but that's, yeah, that's that's kind of Camp Lejeune. But, but going back to uh, being with Lima 36, one, one of the, one of the, my company commander at the time was a was a captain by the name of Joseph Dunford. I don't know if you ever heard that name or not. I have not, no. So Joseph Dunford, uh, you know, Captain Dunford, uh, super great guy. I mean, I guess he reminded me of Jimmy Stewart. Tall, blue eyes, just striking, you know. I mean, and you could tell this guy was going to be somebody, go somewhere, and he did. Became the commandant of the Marine Corps. And eventually became the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You know, so you know he's at the he's he's at the top of the uh, of the military. Ran it, you know, for several years. Um, and that comes into play later on in, in in this journey that I'm on. I tell people that I I feel that I've lived a semi Forrest Gump life uh, with just things that I bumped into, people that I've met, you know, and just. How things happen, I guess. Well, speaking of that, obviously, you know, one thing that's evident in the the film is that Forrest is extremely heroic, but you know, the bullets seem to miss him. So you had some some very tragic um, occurrences through training in in the Marine Corps. So talk to me about that. Sure. Uh, so early on in my Marine Corps career, as a, in the infantry, I was what they called an O three eleven, just a basic Marine rifleman, a grunt. Uh, I guess I must have impressed some folks. And uh, uh, again, for a little short, stubby Mexican, you know, I, I, I think my fastest three miles, my, my fastest three mile run was like uh, 1445. Wow. Yeah. I, 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 that's that, I don't know why, but I could run. I could, I just like Forrest. I mean, I would smoke them all the time. And, uh, and, uh, so that, uh, I guess, just common sense, street sense carried over. And before I knew it, they had asked me if I wanted to go to stay platoon, stay, like stay platoon. And I was thinking like all state football. I was thinking like all state wrestling. I was, you know, that's what, well, the stay, S-T-A, stood for surveillance target acquisition platoon. Now there's, you know, do you want to be a sniper? I thought I was going to, you know, like football, play at all, all state, you know, be part of an all state. <laughs> what did I know? I'm telling you, I, did, my, my, I, I, I learned as I went. And so I said, sure, I'll do that. And next thing you know, I'm going through sniper school. And uh, uh, I ended up, uh, you know, being a school trained scout sniper in the Marine Corps. I got assigned to, uh, you know, a couple of different state platoons. Um Back in uh, March of uh, 1989, uh, I'm on a deployment uh, deployment overseas in the Pacific. Uh, we're taking part in Team Spirit. Team Spirit and I, that's, that's a, a large military exercise uh, that we would do with the South Koreans. <clears throat> and uh, I remember we were, we were on the side of a hill and we saw a CH-46 Fly over us. Now, CH-46 is a Marine Corps helicopter, kind of like a Chinook. Chinooks are 47s. 
Marine Corps uh, 46s are, you know, they're, they're double rotor. They call them frogs. And I remember seeing it fly over us. And then you hear the impact just on the other, on the other side of the hill. And that one went down, you know, I was like, damn. And that was like, I can't remember the exact date on that, but it was like March, you know, like 17th or 18th, something like that, maybe 16th. Um, and that kind of left an impression, you know, that, that was not the first helicopter crash that I had seen, you know? Um, and I was like, damn, you know, that, that, that was bad. That was a bad one. Cause we all, I mean, it literally just flew right over and crashed. Just a few days later on the 20th of March, uh, we were, uh, in the vicinity of Pohang, Korea, uh, early morning, uh, I'm with my, uh, my sniper team and we were very independent. You know, we really, we did our own stuff, you know? <laughs> um, and so we were kind of down in this valley and, uh, we see two large CH-53 helicopters, super stallions, big ones. They have like eight rotor blades. They carry up to almost 40, 50 Marines. They carry, you know, artillery, heavy equipment, and they come, you know, buzzing down the, 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 the valley and we woke us up and or kind of caught our attention and next thing you know boom one of them just slams into the ground i mean i mean very very close to us um so i just got up and you know we we made our way to the crash site um and i could hear i could hear the marines inside screaming and, and the crash site was smoldering at the time, you know, it was, it, it was, it was wreckage. And I, and I can't, I can't tell you what part of the wreckage I climbed in, but I, I climbed into, um, through the wreckage as I climbed into the, I think what was part of the fuselage, the exterior fuel tank finally blew up while I was inside or ignited or whatever. And I just remember feeling the intense heat um, along the side of my face. I remember my my Gore-Tex gear started kind of, you know, like crumbling. And I had grabbed hold of a of a of a of a Marine who was completely now on fire, engulfed on fire. And I was um, went to go pull him by his arm. And what I did is when I pulled I pulled all the skin off. Uh, and then I, I remember just trying to pull him out, but he was lodged in all the wreckage and I ripped them out. You know, and, and, uh, um, I remember like somehow picking them up, carrying them. And there was like a rice paddy that it had crashed next to you. And I remember just, just like putting them down in the, in, cause he was like, he was on, he was like um like smoldering you know and then i put him in into the into the mud into the rice pad and i remember i remember it sizzling as i la laid him in there and uh and i couldn't tell who he was he was just burnt you know his face had no facial features his nose was you could see where his nose was at and he was still moving and somebody came up right next to me and, and I could hear more people screaming in the helicopter. And so I, I left him with that Marine and I went back in. 
and again, when I went back in, this time it was all, it was completely engulfed in fire. Um, I got another guy out and then, you know, it was going around just trying to help who I could. Horrific day. And that's, and that's a long day for me. And I don't want to take up too much time, but ended up carrying a guy, carrying a couple of the Marines that were super hurt, uh, injured into uh, the second helicopter that landed the 53 while I was on the helicopter helping a corpsman uh, do a tracheotomy to open the airway. The helicopter took off with me. So I ended up flying out to the, to the, to the ship, got to the ship. They thought I was a corpsman because I had taken off my jacket. I had covered somebody. So I didn't have any insignias. I ended up down in the triage area, helping somebody out, um, cutting off, you know, burnt clothing. Cause it was, you know, mass casualty drill. And as I'm cutting what I thought was the glove off of a, of a Marine, I realized that I wasn't cutting his glove off. I was cutting his burnt skin because I hit his wedding band. And right about that time, I stopped. I about passed out. And I didn't realize that I had a bunch of shrapnel in the back of my head um, and burnt. And so they they, they figured out I wasn't a corpsman. I, I was just part of this whole mess. Um. And so they bandaged me up, but then I'm thinking, well, shit, I left my crypto gear, all my communication gear, my sniper rifle in a bush somewhere in Korea. I got to get back to it because nobody knows where we're at. We're so independent, right? And nothing's going back to the mainland. I'm on the shot. You know, we're just out at sea with, you know, this whole mass casualty drill. Somehow I was able to finagle my way back on a helicopter, made it back to Pusan some airfield i'm walking around covered in blood and stuff i'm just saying hey i gotta get back to the crash site they're saying what crash site somehow i get in another helicopter and that's going to the crash site once they figure out that i'm need to... anyways long story short i end up back at the crash site recover my gear and there's my sniper my my spotter and he looks at me he goes hey you okay i said i'm okay are you okay yeah and that was it we never talked about it <laughs> isn't that crazy i mean it was just it, it was just it was just a long day, and there's so much to that day. But out of all of that, I was eventually nominated for uh, what they call the Navy Marine Corps Medal for Heroism. Um, I guess it's the highest peacetime award. Um, when you wear it in relationship to the Medal of Honor, it's right there next to the Medal of Honor, right next to uh, the Navy Cross and the Silver Star. So I was awarded that medal. It says heroism on it, but um, yeah, a lot of good people died that day for no no reason at all. You know, I, I found out later, years later, that those pilot error, they're just hot dogging down the valley, trying to scare all the grunts in the back, trying to see how close they could come to the ground. And he just, and you know, some young captain just slammed it into uh, to a rice paddy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and so that that was you know two in two months to the day we're off the coast of Australia doing a nighttime wet water insertion 25, 25 miles from ship to shore we're we're launching off of the the USS Duluth and bad bad sea condition I mean twenty foot swells just pushing the ship everywhere. These are big Navy ships. And I remember they dropped the stern gate 
you know, we walked our Zodiacs, which are, you know, rubber rating crafts to the stern gate. Again, another long story there, but I won't go into too much detail. And we launched. No, please take your time. Yeah, we and we we launched at night. It was probably about midnight, pitch black in the middle of a freaking storm. And and I I I did not know I did not know the guys on the boat team. I was a, I was a sniper, and basically the mission was to to uh, to uh, uh, insert us uh, down a brackish river. We are off of uh, uh, Queensland, Australia. Uh, we were supposed to go into Shoalwater Bay, and then there's I guess there's a take a little uh, brackish river like three miles up and drop us off, and we're going to take a shot. And uh, I knew that you know these guys were were. Uh, I think they were India Company or Kilo India Company from uh, uh, two five, excuse me, three one Third Battalion First Marines, Third Battalion First Marines, and they they were our raid company. And so I had transferred from the Bellow Wood the ship to their ship to do this raid. So again, I didn't know these guys, but I remember I remember being in the birding area, in the sleeping area prior to you know uh, launching. And I remember seeing this guy looking at a book of baby names, right? That sticks in my head. And I, I just remember seeing him there. You know, again, fast forward, we launch into these 20-foot swells that we should have never gone in. Don't really know the guys that are on the boat team with me, but because I'm a scout sniper and I'm trained as a, you know, I'm a good swimmer. I'm a what they call it, a WSI uh, or WSQ, water safety qualified. You know, one of the higher uh, uh, swim quals around in the Marine Corps. They put me in the number one position as as a scout swimmer. I'm like, okay, no big deal. I and mean, here we have all our boots on, all our gear. Uh, you know, our canteens, our ammo pouches, my rifle sniper rifles across my back. All our gear is latched down on the center of the zodiac and you know you're sitting on the gunnel which you're basically with one foot hanging in the waters we're you know trying to get to these uh these swells and it was raining it was dark uh somewhere along the line we got blown off track ended up into uh uh, uh low tide uh hit a series of reefs 20 foot swells create 20 foot waves 25 foot waves and we got pummeled pummeled I remember, uh, like I said, I started surfing. I knew what big waves were. I knew that we were in trouble. And as the Zodiac flipped over, um, it just dragged me across uh, the ocean floor, breaking corals. I went. I put myself like in an L-shaped position, covered my uh, covered my head because I mean that that's what I learned when I used to surf. And I and I popped up got pummeled again by another wave and so on and so on and so on. And eventually what happens is that uh, these guys that I didn't know that were on the boat, they weren't great swimmers. So I had to go out there and swim and pick these guys, you know, drag them back to the overturned Zodiac, so on. Um, what had happened was one of those Marines, uh, uh, Corporal, Bruce Duvall from the state of Washington, he drowned. He drowned. He drowned right off the bat because he got tangled up in all the gear that was latched. You know, as, as the Zodiac was turning the wave, somehow he got uh, caught up in the gear and drowned. And they were trying to resuscitate him and stuff unsuccessfully. 
um, I ended up, uh, the, our Zodiac got overturned several times. Eventually, it, it got right side up. Everybody was accounted for. We had the outboard was gone. Our paddles were lost. All we had is like, you know, one, and I'm trying to paddle just to kind of keep the keep us out of the uh, the impact of the waves. Even though it was dark, you could see it and hear it. Uh, we didn't know how close we were to shore. I guess we must have been pretty close because we couldn't even see the shoreline. But uh, one of these large waves actually came up and pushed us into a uh, into a very rocky shoreline, plunging shoreline, and it just slammed us into the shoreline. I ended up somehow landing on my feet, looking out to the ocean. Uh, the, the zodiac is dancing in the wave and falls on top of me. And that, that sounds crazy, but it falls on top of me. I have my hands somehow they're behind my head. The whole Zodiac falls on me, the weight of it. The outboard engine is hitting me on my crotch and my head's under underwater because now we're on the shoreline and I'm drowning in about a foot of water. Um, We all had chem sticks. You know what a chem stick is? You know, the chem light. The chem light. There you go. So, you know, uh, SOP was you go into water, you pop it, you know. And so we had this eerie yellow glow. And I remember with my hands behind my head, um, this eerie glow, I could see the I could see the the uh, the fuel bladder. I could see, you know, parts of the equipment and I could feel the weight of the of, of the Zodiac on my chest. Um, I looked at, you know, you know, it takes about. 10 guys to lift those things. If it's fully loaded with equipment, everything, it's even more. Uh, the transom and the, and the outboard adds even more weight. So I can't, I, I don't even know how much weight was on me. But um, I'm screaming, I'm kicking, I'm trying to break free and I can't, you know, and this is again, time slows down for me. Wave after wave would come in, it would take um, whatever little air pocket I had and I start ingesting and inhaling water. Through my nose, I could feel the burn of it because it's, it's it's salt water, you know. Uh, I'm just I'm freaking out. I'm drowning. I'm, I know I'm drowning, and uh, I'm able to get my right arm down. And I remember when I pulled my right arm down, I I, I from what I've been told, I ripped or I did damage to my shoulder. I was able to get to my knife, my K bar. And I started trying to cut what I thought was I was entangled with, but what I ended up ended up doing is that I ruptured the fuel bladder, and then I had all the fuel again in my eyes and my nose. I was inhaling and adjusting it, um, and I was done. And I and I was fighting all the way to the very end, to the very end. I, I just I was not going to die. And eventually, a large wave came up, picked up lifted the the boat off of me i was able to get my other arm down as i started to push away from underneath it uh the outboard landed on my face and when it hit me on the face it pushed me into the coral and at that point um i knew i was done and i let go and you know call it what you want shallow water blackout life after death experience, whatever. I, I, I don't know, but I let go. And when I let go, I was at peace. Um, 
if we, if you, if any of us could ever remember what it felt like to be in your mom's womb, and that's what I kind of, kind of equated to, because it, it felt warm, it felt safe, um, it felt there, there, there was no, there was nothing there that I was afraid of. It was so comforted, comforting that I allowed myself to go. And there was, you know, I, I didn't see the light, but there was certainly a presence that I felt. And I remember hearing my my parents talk as far as why do we let him go? They're upset at the fact that why did they let me go into the Marine Corps? And next thing you know, I'm on the beach uh, being resuscitated, um, you know, Eventually, a, a helicopter lands. They put me on the backboard, and they fly me off to the ship. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's that's one of many. How's that? <laughs> and this is during peacetime. During peacetime, yeah. During peacetime, yeah. Well, I mean, there's stuff going on. I mean, I don't think there's ever really a, a peacetime. There's a lot of things that go on that is, uh, and I'm sure you know people. They'll tell you the same thing. It's a it, it's an ugly, ugly world, and there's a lot of bad people out there that want to do us harm. So, with that, I'll put this to you. I mean, you've just talked about horrendous events that were not as a result of an enemy, but you know, again, we don't have to name names or, or dates or anything. But there's a there's a two sided question. I always ask anyone who was you know deployed, quote unquote. Was there a moment, and this might even be, you know, pre-military for you, um, was there a moment where regardless of the politics that you were sent by, that you witnessed atrocities, you know, some horrible people that needed to be taken care of by the the, the men and women that you had alongside you? And when you say taken care of, I mean, what do you, what do you um, mean by that? Mitigated. Let's <laughs> use that word. Yeah. yeah. Uh, taken care of, huh? Again, like I said, there's a there's there's a lot of ugly people out there, a lot of bad people um, that want to do us harm, and uh, you know, you take care of business. How can I say it? nobody ever got with at least what from what I saw, never got nobody got what they had coming undeserving. So conversely. What about moments of kindness and compassion? Were there moments where you were in a very dangerous place where you witnessed kindness and compassion either by the Marines you were serving with or the people that you were actually sent there to protect? Every day, all over the world. Yeah. there's uh, People are good. People are good. There's just some, every now and then you got some sick individual. Um, even with all the crap that's happened to me, I still see the good in people. And even even bad people at times do good things, you know. Believe it or not, even the bad guys do good things. I mean, I remember one time as a police officer, my my partner and I uh, were on bicycle patrol, riding along the railroad tracks, making sure that nobody was breaking into railroad cars. And we got separated because of the noise and the movement of the trains. And unbeknownst to me, my partner stopped and contacted somebody but but because of the noise of the train again bad tactics on our part because you know we got separated uh contacting a guy the guy attacks him 
knocks him off his bike. He hits his head on the on the on the railroad on the rail tie. Luckily, he had his helmet. Rung his bell and was trying to fight him off, but the guy was trying to put his head under a moving uh, rail car and trying to crush you know have his head crushed by the just. And I didn't know this. I, I just kept on riding, you know, minding my own business, looking, thinking that my partner was on the other side. And what happened was a couple of the guys that we would always chase off and, you know, drunks and all that, they came to his assistance, saved them. So when I say that, you know, hey, you know, there's good in everybody. Something made those, something made it click for those guys, even though we would always chase them off, arrest them, mess with them, came out and saved my partner. It's amazing. And I think I agree with you completely. You have horrible people. I was actually just discussing this with my wife. Um, there was a horrific murder here in, in Ocala a few years ago, and it was a group of young high school kids, 15, 16, that lured, uh, I think the, the victim was 15 years old. They beat him, they tortured him, they shot him, and they ultimately cut up his body and burned him. And it was all absolutely, and it was a group, including adults, in, you know, in this thing. Absolutely horrendous. Well, that kid is, you know, I guess had a peel. He's on death row. And there was, you know, when we're doing the Google search, there was a Facebook to, you know, a, a plea to get him off death row. There's pictures of him in his hearing smirking. You know, I mean, that that's someone, I'm very, very forgiving, but there are certain people you know the you know some of the school shooters that we've had they're just so broken that they're beyond help but as you're touching on there are some people that found themselves down a wayward path whether it's in a gang whether it's you know addicted to whatever that ultimately are good people and when given an opportunity that good will come out absolutely i completely agree with you there there are some people uh and no matter what you try are just destined to be evil devious liars you know i mean and and yeah those are those are very very frightening people and and then there's other ones that like i said just shit happens and they turn out you know on the wrong side and and those people you need to uh you know help out i mean i own a small business where you know i i i don't mind hiring folks that are on probation or parole you know that, you know, there's there's certain things I, I'm not going to hire. You know, somebody who uh, you know pedophilia. That I, you know, that's where it's hits close to home. Yeah, it's close <laughs> to home exactly. But I, but I do hire guys that are on parole and probation. I do help them out. I do try to mentor them. I do try to give them a second opportunity. You know? See, that lines up with the drug conversation earlier. Um, you know, one thing that I think would be an amazing would be decriminalization of addiction. That doesn't mean now. You know, that Vons, the store is stocking meth and, you know, heroin and stuff. But if you catch an addict with an addict's amount of, of substance, that they go into a mental health route, not a, a criminal route. And I think one of the vicious circles we have is the addict at the moment, more often than not, gets a criminal record that then is a barrier to them getting employment. And now they're kind of stuck in this vicious circle. So they need employers like you that are willing to give people a second chance but look you know you, you made mistakes i've you know we've all made mistakes let me give you you know an opportunity under certain you know rules and regs for you to start proving yourself and building yourself back up again yeah you know and, and as and you know switching hats here you know as an employer um I've uh, and I and I work with a specific program called the Steps Steps program out of Ventura County, 
um i've actually uh have gone to them and complained and say hey you know what don't send me people that don't want to do this because you because the judge will tell them hey if you get a job and blah, 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 we'll cut your sentence down so these guys are motivated for just to cut their, sen- their sentence down and then they're sending me you know a gaggle of these guys like you know it's like hold on you know this is not the way you show up to apply for a job and so i've actually gone there and given classes have spoken to them and of all the ones they've sent to me i would say very few will will really very few want to change when given the opportunity but I'm still willing to do it for those very few. And I'm still willing to, you know, go through the, you know, through the hiring process of getting 20 of them to just try to sift out one. But I'm willing to give them the chance, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's the mentality as well. Sadly, at the moment, people will focus. Let's, let's flip it around. Say it's it's quite successful and you have 15 out of 20 that do well. The, the, the tendency for a lot of people in society is to go, well, look at those five. It didn't work. You know, and, and my whole thing, even with this podcast, it takes a lot of work, you know, editing and, and prepping for the interviews and obviously the conversations, which I enjoy so much, but it is a lot of work. But my whole philosophy is if it helps one single person, each, each of the guests that comes on, one single person, all of this was worth it. Everything else is a bonus. So if you have 20 applicants and 19 weren't the right fit, that 20th person, you just changed their entire world. That was worth all the effort. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I 100% agree with you. Absolutely. Well, well I want to get into your law enforcement career. I don't want to spend too long there because we obviously got a very important topic to talk about after that. But you mentioned Rampart. Obviously, for some of us, you know, we recognize that name. I want to preface it first, though. When you were working in that area, Let's talk first about the environment that these men and women were working in, because it's very easy, especially the last two years, to be like, oh, you know, law enforcement is so mean, they're too rough. And you kind of, you revisit some of the times, let's say South Central in LA, for example, in the 80s and 90s. That must have been an absolutely terrifying place. One of of the guys I used to work with was a medic in there at that time, and it was just, you know, constant body collection, basically. So what was the environment, you know, walk me through your kind of journey into being a law enforcement officer in the LA area, and then I'd love to kind of transition into the Rampart scandal through your eyeballs. Well, I I think that, you know, I'll just kind of give you the whole should bang together because it kind of all fits together for me um, in my answer. Um, again, uh, leaving the Marine Corps, knowing that I got to do something, I never intended to be a police officer. I I just wanted to go out and work on the fishing boats as a deckhand. Forrest Gump through, again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, what do they call them? Pinhead. So I, that's, I love fishing, so I just wanted to go – and at the time, I, my 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 new bride, my wife, was like, whatever. Just you know, she knew that I had gone through a lot. And, and again, there's a lot more in my Marine Corps career that I won't get into. But I've suffered from complex PTSD from a lot of that crap that I went through. Um, and she was fine. She's like, yeah, whatever. And it just happened to be that one of the guys in my short time platoon wanted to uh, take the test for LAPD. We were down in Camp Pendleton. He was from Chicago, and I remember telling the guy, 
His name was Corporal Arroyo. Hopefully he's not listening. I told him, man, you're, you're about stupid as a bag of rocks. You'll never pass the test. He goes, but I want to, I want to take the test, you know, the, the written test. I go, well, it's going to cost you 20 bucks and some dinner or whatever. Just take them up to LA. I had, I was like one of the only guys that had a car. So charge them 20 bucks uh, for gas, you know, and uh, he at the time bought, and this is dating myself again, uh, but uh, a Barron's study guide, Barron's. I remember like, Barron's. Yeah, yeah, the Barron's study guide for law enforcement. So so he'd come into my room and we'd read it up and whatever. And the guy was cool. And so I drove him to L.A. So it was so insignificant. I don't remember where in L.A. But we got there, and this is before cell phones, and I dropped him off. And he begged me not to leave him because what happens if they don't open the door? All it said, all, all it said was, Police test, the line starts here. And he's like, no, don't leave me. So I stood there with him. And as the line grew to about 200 applicants, we got there early. As it grew, everybody was telling me, well, you just need your driver's license to take the test. So long story short, I took the test. I passed. He failed. <laughs> so I went into LAPD again, not knowing anything about LAPD other than uh, one Adam 12, squad 51. You know, that's all I knew. I didn't realize that those 17 geographical locations in the city of LA, I didn't re realize that, you know, uh, you know, they, they had different units. Uh, I went through the Academy at the old Academy by Dodger stadium. And, and uh, uh, at the end of the, the, the training there, I graduated as the, uh, as the uh, class leader, you know, I, my time in the Marine Corps helped to motivate, keep people together, push them through. And I didn't intend to do that. It just happened. And so part of my uh, part of my reward for, you know, being the class leader, they asked me. So, uh, you know, they said, Vega, you know, you, you get to choose uh, which division you want to go to. And being who I am, I said, well, where's all the killing at? I said, well, you want to go to Rampart. And so that's how I ended up in Rampart. So you asked me what it was like. I get to Rampart in 93, 93, 94. Um, there's a war going on, a street war uh, between the Mexican Mafia, 18th Street, and MS-13, Marasalva 13. And people forget that the origins of MS-13 all started with Oliver North back down in the, back in the days, the early 80s, when we were arming the uh, Sandinistas and El Salvador and all that. We were pumping... A lot of firepower down there. These guys learned how to, you know, how to handle weapons, how to fight, and uh, you know, made them some pretty mean individuals, some mean hombres down there. And they started migrating up here, and now they are trying to take over turf that belonged to 18th Street and Mexico Mafia. And man, you talk about a bloody war in Rampart. That's that's what I knew. I, I stepped right into that. If we didn't find a dead body, a shooting, blood on the street, something was off. I mean, I saw dead people in the Marine Corps. But never, never in the amounts that I saw uh, in Rampart. Uh, my first, my first homicide as a rookie. Um, <laughs> um, well, let me back up a little bit. At the time, half of half of the police officers in Rampart were all Marines, and uh, there was a couple guys that I had served with actually in Lebanon that were there. Not to name names, but uh, which was interesting. Um, and I remember one night we uh, we went we we're going on patrol, you know, 
uh, and and I uh, had a partner. Uh, you know, as a rookie, you you're just uh, everybody's. You know, you just get passed around <laughs> in whatever shift and wherever you fit in. And so I was working with this one guy. He was a Marine, uh, former Marine. And I remember as we're checking out the car, checking our shotgun, checking out the radios, and making sure we got flares, spare tire, all that stuff. You know, a procedure that we did before we you know hit the street. He comes up to me and grabs me by my my vest. You know, he sticks his thumbs under, kind of underneath my vest, pulls me in close, and he like ah, starts stumping on my chest. Fucking stormtroopers or fucking stormtroopers got there to smoke somebody. I'm thinking, no, I don't want to smoke anybody. <laughs> you know, I'm, that guy was all fired up, man. He scared the crap out of me. I was like, geez, you know, because he knew what was on out there. And as soon as you would turn on what they called your MDT, your mobile data transmitter, man, it just go, and you would have five priority one calls. No shoplifting, no theft it was just all party one calls man you just you were just on your way on you know you know you know just a wild ride and that evening we we get a we get a call of you know and it's almost like one out of 12 for those who remember you know uh ddd you know one out of 12 one out of, you know see the man it was weird two out of 12 two is for rampart you know see the man you know, at this location, reporting blood in, in front of, you know, apartment, whatever. Nothing, you know, okay, big deal. You know, there's blood all over the streets. So we get there and uh, and the guys, guys, super calm officers. There's just a lot of blood in the apartment, you know, in front of a, whatever apartment B. Like, okay, I'll show us where it's at. And at the time as we were getting there, uh, it, we went to tactical alert. Tactical alert means that uh, there are so many priority one calls that we there's not enough officers to handle the calls. So they got to, you know, hold everybody on overtime. They stop taking calls. They start bringing in uh, other folks from other divisions like Central Division, Northeast Division to assist in Rampart Division. You know, so, I mean, we're overwhelmed. And so when that happens, there's no backup available. So as we're going to go see what's happening, they're telling us, hey, you know, and, and you hear it, dee, 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 you know, uh, you know, we're tactical alert, you know, like, oh, shit. So we go to this door as we're walking down this hallway. Again, it's like a movie, flickering lights, dark, you know, narrow hallway. I'm walking in front of my crazy ass partner who's telling me that he wants to smoke somebody. Right. And you could hear the, the, the guy behind us, the RP, the reporting person, just kind of like a lot of blood, a lot of blood. Right. And I step, I take, and it's dark, and I'm walking, and I step, and I hear a crunch. And what I did is I stepped on the upper palate, teeth, part of the nose of somebody's face was on the ground. And I turned on my, and at that point, I kind of turned on my light, and like, I mean, blood splattered everywhere. And I'm sure as you, as a, as a, as a firefighter, you know that, uh, a head injury, a, a brain shot, I mean, heavy, heavy, velvet, red-looking blood. And it has that that smell. I was like, oh, man. In my mind, I was thinking, man, somebody just got smoked with a shotgun, the way the blood. Just, and then I looked, and it was just, you could see, I mean, flesh and blood and just heavy. And it got dragged into whatever apartment three it was. And 
my guy, my partner in back says, we're going to smoke somebody. He starts telling me that, and like, we're gonna, and his gun's out. I'm like, oh, my God. And I'm walking, you know, pointing. I'm getting up to the door and walking through the blood. And, uh, you know, I'm, anytime you come to a door, you always want to check the, the doorknob because nine times out of ten, it's unlocked. No, no need to kick it, right? <laughs> so I'm checking the doorknobs. I'm opening, you know, turning the doorknob to see if the door is open where all this blood is, you know, where the person, you could see that somebody got dragged back. The door right next to that apartment opens up. It's a little Filipino guy screaming out of his head that she's in there. She's in there. My partner almost shot that guy. Just surprised the crap out of us. Pushes him in, closes his door. Now the element of surprise is gone because, you know, the that guy that might be on the other side knows that we're in the doorway and it kills them. There's no room to move to maneuver. And I'm thinking, Oh my God, I, I, you know, shotgun, I don't get killed. As I check the doorknob, it's open. And I, as I try to open and push, I can't because the person's body is blocking the door. So then now I hear, you know, and, and you could see it, it, it's very fresh. It, it, there's blood still pulling out and we're just in it. And as I'm pushing, 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 I'm able to move the body over and it's just a very small apartment. And uh, as we go through it, we clear it very quickly. We hear noise in the uh, in the bathroom, like water running. And my partner again, he's like, man, uh, he's in there. He's in there. We're going to smoke him. Like, yeah. I was like, oh, my God. You know, I'm already frightened as it is, right? And he kicks the door open. Nobody's in there, thank God. But what it is, it's it's a large woodcutting axe that the, the murderer was washing the blood off, and it was sitting on a blue towel. This is how much, you know, this is way, I, I can still remember and picture it. What had happened was, as I guess as we were kicking the door in or moving the body, the person was in there washing the axe, heard us, made their way out of the, the uh, sliding glass door, broke through the fence and into the alleyway into the night. What happens is that it was a daughter, Chinese daughter that was mentally ill, went to like, I don't know, Walmart or Kmart on the, on the bus, bought an ax, came back with the ax. Mom was asleep on the couch and just started chopping her away. And, and the, and the, and the mom actually made her way into the, into the hallway where she just proceeded to chop her away some more. The little Filipino guy saw it all, freaked out, called his, you know, and then dragged the body. And then here we show up, you know, hey, my partner saying, let's smoke somebody. And like, holy crap, what do we, you know? That was my first homicide. Oh, my goodness. That's, that's horrible. Yeah. I mean, we, we see some horrible stuff, but I mean, that's a, that's a level of trauma that, you know, you can't unsee. Oh, yeah, I know. So, I mean, so you're asking me about Rampart, you know, what it was. I mean, it was just, it was just crazy. And, and it was, and it was a level of crazy. So, you know, and again, and nothing, you know, it, it was just, uh, it was a dog eat dog world. You know, you had to stand your ground or else you would lose control and, and control was lost. It, where we, where we, where we would stand, we had control when we left out of control. Now, what about the threat to law enforcement back then? We, I mean, we, you see the war between the gangs, but it almost, you get a sense of the war between the streets and the police sometimes in some of these these periods as well always always on uh shoot i mean yeah a lot of officer involved shootings 
you know, just, just, uh, yeah, there's, there's uh, you know, back then, I mean, it, it's just, it's, it's, you know, sometimes I tell people as far as, you know, law enforcement career and all that stuff is that, you know, you're reactionary, you're reacting to whatever's there, you know? So, you know, a lot of the times, I mean, it was a very violent area. So you're reacting with violence, control violence. And th- that's how I saw it there. It was, it was just, uh, it was, a uh, it was like being in the movie. How's that? <laughs> So that's obviously the setting of you know the, the the environment that you had to work under. I think there's a lot of gray area cases that are presented to the general public that there's no real backstory. Whether it's the you know the environment that those officers are working in, whether they even slept for two days because they were told to work mandatory shifts. I mean, all these things are never brought into these equations. But then there's some obvious you know very very prominent abuse of power cases as well, whether it's, you know, the George Floyd, you know, and he was no angel, but, you know, there was a an abandonment of professionalism in that particular case. Um, talk to me about the actual Rampart scandal and those officers that really did kind of um, diminish the profession for the rest of the good officers in your department. So I, I served with a lot, again, a lot of great officers, a lot of good guys, a lot, a lot of guys that were there to, to do what... Uh, to do the right thing. Um, so Rafael Perez uh, was kind of the cause of the Rampart scandal. He was a police officer to, rent, to work Rampart. Um, I worked with him a few times. Uh, he's probably, when I left LAPD, he was probably one of the one of the few guys that I knew his name, Rafael Perez. You know, I, a lot of times you would call people by their last name, just kind of like in the military. Um. And the times that I worked with them, I remember that he would say, hey, you know, uh, you want to go work a gig? You know, and it was, you know, a gig, you know, like, I, you know, you want to go, you know, work a, an off-duty gig? And I would say no, because I I worked in L.A. I lived in Oxnard 60 miles away. And I, you know, it, I got to go home and get some sleep because I got to get ready for the next day. So I never did. Thank God I never did because, uh, you know, some of the gigs that he was working for were for Shook Knight, you know, Death Road Records. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole story behind how Rafael Perez became who he was, uh, the shady stuff that he was working, along with some other officers. One One of his buddies got killed by an undercover police officer in a road rage incident where the undercover police officer didn't realize that the guy who was creating the road rage was an off-duty police officer working a gig for Shook Knight and Shook Knight's girlfriend's car. And there was a shooting, got killed, Rafael Perez. Uh, and again, and I, may, and I, may, I might be wrong in some of the details here, but he took, uh, took offense to that and wanted to make sure that this cop, this undercover narcotic officer paid the price. And so... Rafael Perez ended up going to uh, uh, the evidence locker in Central Bureau, checking out a bunch of cocaine that this officer had recently brought in in a big drug, drug bust and exchanged the cocaine for flour. And so Rafael Perez, knucklehead, gets caught. And he knows he's going down pretty hard. And he says, well, hold on a minute. Let me tell you about the other dirty cops that are out there, which is part of the crash unit. You know the 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 gang unit, and so he starts divulging all this other. You know, I know this guy did this. I know this guy heavy handed, whatever. And 
you know, uh, all I could say about that time that I spent there was it was a dog eat dog world. And, uh, you know, uh, it's just, it's, it was just tough being a cop back in those days, you know, especially in that area, trying just to keep, keep the lid on it. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to, you know, your son's journey through the Marine Corps. So just before we do, talk to me about your transition out. Um, you know, you have now accumulated an absolute mountain of trauma. Um, for many of us, even with a seemingly normal first responders career, the transition out can be a challenge. You know, you've, you had that, that purpose, you had that tribe, you had that, um, that identity in the profession that you are, and now you transition out. What what made you pull the trigger on actually leaving the profession, and what was that experience like for you personally? So transitioning out, that's interesting. Um, I So I left LAPD just because uh, driving from the city of Oxnard to LA was, could either be an hour on the freeway or, or could be three hours of the night, you know, just... I I went from Burbank and I worked in Anaheim, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no escaping tra- LA traffic, uh, and then you, you know, I'd work, you know, eight hours, ten hours, sometimes twelve hours, sixteen hours of terror, just sheer terror. You get stuck on something. It's like, oh my god, I got to get home because I got to get some sleep. And then you know, you, I have to make my way back. So eventually, I uh, applied as uh, for a position with the city of Oxnard. I got picked up, became police officer in the city of Oxnard, and so. Uh, different. It's different working in the city that you grew up in, living in the city that you're working and dealing with people. Big difference, big difference. And so during this time period that I'm working here in, in Oxnard, I, uh, you know, we're working, uh, you know, three twelves, you know, three days on, four days off. And there's only so much mountain biking, working out that I could do, you know, and, and it's just got. And so I've always had an entrepreneurial business. I always enjoyed, you know, seeing how businesses work and so on. And so uh, I started, <laughs> I, I, one of the guys had a pressure washer on a trailer, hot water, steam pressure washer. And, uh, you know, the word on the street was that he was making a killing, you know, pressure washing 7-Elevens and Taco Bells. I'm like, well, I want some of that. <laughs> and so, and so I said something to him. And, and he goes, yeah, well, when I'm ready, I'll sell you my business. I said, great. And I'm the knucklehead that what I say is what I do. So, you know, open mouth, insert foot. You know, because I said, yeah, I'll do it. So he comes to me. Uh, he must have known that I we got a tax return. My wife was away in Europe with her mom. And I had this tax return, 5000 bucks. I'm like, oh, man, I told the guy that I'd buy his pressure washing machine trailer. And so cashed it, bought it. I knew I was going to be in trouble. And that's what kind of started my my business that I have now, 23 years later. And the reason I'm telling you this is because as I'm working as a police officer, I'm setting my schedule up to where I'm also growing my business, my plan B. Um, almost 15 years into Oxnard PD, uh, you know, I'm driving my patrol car in the evening, uh, I had worked already domestic violence. Uh, uh, I worked a violent crime task force. I was on SWAT. I was, you know, several bicycle detail. Now I was pushing the black and white. And as I'm, and and I've always been known as a ship magnet. I don't know if you ever heard that term. Or not. Oh, I am too. So yes, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> truly, yeah, 
Yeah, so a shit magnet. So I'm a shit magnet. And so next thing you know, I'm driving past this liquor store. And here comes a guy that just robbed the liquor store, comes out, almost runs into my car. I'm like, damn. You know, and here here it goes. Uh, he turns around. And I guess he had some sort of bottle or something, throws it at my police car, breaks the windshield. Like, ah, oh, shit, now I got to chase this guy. So I get out and I start chasing him two blocks, you know, up and over fences, around cars, through apartment complexes. He finally gets ahead of me, gets into an apartment complex, just like in a movie, just closes the the, the, the security door. And he's like on the other side, on one side, and he just walks away. Because by the time, I, you know, and you're trying to put out over the radio where you're at, but you're, you know, out of breath, you know, trying to figure out where you're at. <clears throat> and so the guy gets away. I uh, I get in the car. I drive away, go to the next call. I go to step out, and I can't step on my left foot. I'm like, oh, shit, I did something. Well, unbeans to me, adrenaline had worn out. Uh, I had torn my uh, several tendons and had uh, – I grenaded my my left ankle, my left ankle. So I was medically retired as a police officer. So that's a weird transition. That is a weird transition right there. I I was hoping to do my twenty and you know, hey, I'll just continue on and doing what all good cops do, become a PI or go work security somewhere or go work at a different agency, you know. But here I am. I'm now I'm medically retired. My, you know, it took. It's taken a long time for my ankle to get better. It still hurts. Um, but uh, what was interesting is that I they had a, you know, you bec- then what happens? You get hurt. Now you become part of the workers' comp side of the house. And as quickly as you're part of the guys, now you're not part of the guys because nobody wants to talk to you. Nobody wants to come around you because you're part of that work comp thing. It's a weird world. And I never wanted to be part of that. And so eventually what happens is um, it, it, I, I, I go to my, my reaccommodation meeting because the city has to give you, a, you know, they have to reaccommodate or offer a reaccommodation. And they say, hey, you know, you could go work at wastewater, be a wastewater specialist. That's what the city could offer you, but you'll lose your police retirement. Or you could accept the, 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 the retirement that we're offering now. Like, well, shit, really? And my wife says, well, can't he go back and work upstairs in detectives? And basically the response was no. That's only for people who get shot. I'm like, what? So you reward people who get shot. Or he wasn't shot. That's what the response was. He wasn't shot. So my wife's like, you reward people who get shot by, you know, so wrong. It's, it's you know. Anyway, so, but those, but. But there was a lot to that as well because I failed to mention, I failed to mention that in, from from 2002 to 2008, I publicly took on the Catholic Church for my sex abuse. And, and I took them to task. I was one of the very few victims that went public that would t- talk about the extent of sexual abuse publicly. And I was very active and, you know, even going to uh, the state legislative in Sacramento to change, you know, the to, to raise the statute of limitation to allow, you know, cases to go through. 
and and to hold the Catholic Church accountable. So I was again already ruffling feathers. I think this was a very very easy way for the city to get rid of me because I was on everything except Oprah. <laughs> so, but the transition was um, what helped me out considerably is that I had my business going, and so uh, as I left the police department, I was able to occupy the need to know, the need to be active with work, other work. Brilliant. Well, let's shift to Patrick then. So you know, tell me about you know, how many kids you had you know, total and then walk me through Patrick, the child, and then let's go through his, his journey into the Marines. Sure. <clears throat> um. So I, I married my wife my last year in the Marine Corps. And so, so she got to see what the Marine Corps, she got to see me in the Marine Corps. And, 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 and again, I, and I left out some stuff out of the Marine Corps as well. And we kind of decided to wait to have kids for the first five years. And then, Right about the five-year mark, boom, she was pregnant. Uh, we had our son, Patrick. Um, and I tell you, man, it's uh, having – you could be an aunt, an uncle. You could be a friend. You could hold somebody else's kid. But, man, I tell you what, when that baby's born and, and you as the father finally get to hold your child, wow. Incredible, man. I mean, that's you. That's a part of you. You know, that child's great. I love. And uh, I mean, I'm sorry. I, I'm just goosebumps just came over me right now. Just, just an incredible day. Um, and just like any other parent, you know, you gloat over your kids and you want the best of the best. And you, you know, first time parent, you're learning how to do things right and wrong. And, you know, so we had a, Fantastic time raising our son, Patrick. And then soon after, uh, Kate came along. Patrick was born in 1997. Kate was born in 2000. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I remember working as a police officer. <clears throat> I, I did Part of working in the city that you live in. Uh, I would take my code seven or my lunch at home so I could be with the kids. And I would always tuck them in. I always, I always made a point of that. And, uh, and Patrick and I, you know, uh, I love Godzilla, Godzilla movies, Mothra, everything else. And uh, I would lay in bed with him and I would tell him, uh, you know, going to bed, we would always talk about Godzilla and I would always make up stories about Monster Island and Godzilla and Mothra and Rodan and Monster you know, X and everybody else, right? And uh, and he'd start telling me stories too. You know, was a little, and that was a fantastic time. You know, um, went to, he was a he was academically academically very smart kid. Always on the honor roll, uh, civic wise, always helping people. Always first the first one to volunteer. Same thing with my daughter. You know, very good kids. And like I said, you know, 2002, 2003, you start getting all these reporters showing up at the house. 
uh, you know, wanting to know about my sexual abuse. Because that was a hot topic, man. And, you know, hey, fills in a new spot. Why not? And when lawsuits were, you know, submitted against the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, we had news vans lined up, lined down, up and down the street. And my kids would, you know, just, they would be there. I, I would never exclude them or take them away. They always, they, they were always there in the background with my wife. Uh, and I remember somebody telling me, well, you know, is that wrong? I go, no, it's not wrong. This is, this is who dad is. I'm not going to hide anything from my kids. Um, and in fact, even my wife and I tried, we really tried to uh, introduce them into the Catholic faith. We took them to catechism. You've heard, you know what catechism is, right? Um, I don't mind. So I was, <laughs> I was exposed to um, the Church of England, which I think is Protestant. Um, sure. They gave it a shot. It didn't really kind of stick with me personally. So I'm yeah. not really well versed in the specificities of some of these religious practices. Got it, got it. So catechism, like say, for example, you have parochial schools where you go and, you know, like a Catholic parochial school and you learn about, you know, Jesus, God, love, and so on, and, and the stories of the Bible, and they teach you of the Catholic faith. For those who are Catholic that don't go to a parochial school, there is classes after school that will teach you of the Catholic faith. And it will get you ready for your first communion, your confirmation, and, and you know, it, it it's teaching you about the Catholic faith. So we had my son in one of those classes, and as I'm battling the church to get, you know, truth and accountability and, and, and you know, over sexual abuse, we're taking my son to catechism. I'm there one day dropping him off, and the director of the catechism school comes out and says, hey, hey, you, you, he didn't even know my name. Can you come in and just substitute in one of these classes because the teacher, you know, isn't here, and we just need a parent to be in there. And here I am, I'm undercover, dropping my kid off. I got a gun underneath my jacket. And he's asked me, to, he doesn't know who the hell I am. I think, oh, my God. And at that point, I told my wife, I said, you know, we're just going to not do that. Yeah, so, so Patrick and Kate kind of skipped the whole Catholic thing. They know about it. We've allowed them to explore different uh, faiths. We, got some, we had some very... Uh, close friends are Jewish. They learned about the Jewish faith and so on. And my wife teaches at a Lutheran school. They le learned about Lutherans. But anyways, but kids had a good upbringing. My son was uh, took to swimming uh, like a fish to water. I mean, it was little. He would always swim, swam competitively. His sister followed. Uh, they both were part of the Junior Olympics here in California several years in a row. They swam, uh, uh, you know, on the club teams. They played water polo. Uh, in the summers, he would be part of the junior lifeguard uh, events that would go on at the beach, uh, high school swim team, water polo team. Uh, same thing with my daughter, but both my son and daughter hate to run. <laughs> They're not runners like me. They hate to run. Uh, so somewhere along the line, I uh, – always uh i've never hid anything from my children as far as where i grew up what happened to me um you know again my experiences in the marine corps uh my experiences as a police officer in fact i would even uh take them to events where i was assisting with at-risk use i would include my kids there 
so they could, you know, be around other kids to understand what's going on in life. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and it's funny because some of the other police officers would say, Hey, you're sending, you're sending your kid to the local public school to gladiator school. You go, yeah, of course, man. Why not? I go, you know, this is, this is where, you know, they, they got to figure out conflict resolution, who friend and foe is. They got to make, the, they got to learn early on because that's what's out there. You know, why am I going to try to shelter them? You shouldn't you know, expose them because at that, as they're young, you as the parent still has, you still have the ability to help and mold and help them through the transition into adulthood. And that's what I was doing with, with my kids. And I think, again, not because they're my kids, but my, I think both of my kids are, were fantastic. Uh, and so, um, Part of what I left out of my Marine Corps story was <clears throat> that I became a recruiter. I was a Navy, I was a Marine Corps recruiter. And I took that position on because after my near-death experiences, as I was laying in the hospital ship, I was asked, you know, what do you want to do? You know, it's time for you to, you know, you got two strikes on you, you know, three strikes you're out. Do you think you want to go, uh, you know, what do you want to do? And my head is, oh, I want to go home. Well, do you want to become a recruiter? I'm like, oh, oh, yeah, it gets me home. Why not? Well, then we'll send you to recruiting duty. Or do you want to go become a drone instructor? Or do you want to be a uh, a scout sniper instructor in Quantico? I don't know. I just want to go home. And my, that's where my mind was at. So I go to recruiting school. Um, I was a very successful recruiter. I never bullshitted anybody. I was always, you know. I, I wasn't your typical recruiter. Um, and I was and in in the recruiting, when I was a recruiter, they'll tell you now that things have changed, but I doubt it. But when I was a recruiter, there was a there was a hidden quota there that you had to make, you have to meet numbers, you have to make mission. And if you didn't make mission, then you would they would punish you in all sorts of evil ways. Uh, and so I was a very successful recruiter. I uh I was up here in Santa Maria, California, which is, again, north of here, Central Valley area, Central California. And uh, out of the blue one day, uh, this mother calls me. And she says, uh, and I just remember the last name, uh, you know, I'm the mother of Corporal Johnson. I said, okay. My son died in the helicopter crash that she survived. Never expected that. This is probably two years after the fact, a year and a half, pretty recent. And so then I, I was like, and it hit me like a ton of bricks because, you know, when you're, you know, you're, 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 you're how's the saying go? Young, dumb, and full of cum, you know, you just, you know, sergeant stripes and you're just strutting yourself around. I, it was, it was beyond, it was past me. I've survived that, whatever. Um, and so she hits, it hits me like a ton of bricks, no fault of hers. Right. And it sets me into, she was asking, do you remember him? I go, no, I don't even know what your son looks like. Well, he was blonde, blue eyes, gave me a full description. I go, I'm sorry, don't. And I didn't have the heart to tell her that everybody that I had pulled out was either in pieces or charred. And those who were in the helicopter were charred, but still alive. I, I don't know who her son was. They were covered in mud. Or, it, was, it was very gruesome. Uh, 
uh, 22 Marines died, and another 18 were severely, severely burnt. Um, yeah, and, and I didn't know how to answer her. And then she started telling me the story of how the Marine Corps was was saying that the death that her son's death was a result of him not being buckled into his seat and not wearing head protection a helmet that the helicopter crash was deemed survivable but because he wasn't buckled in he got tossed inside got knocked out and got burned to death and I had no response to her I've never even imagined ever having this conversation with anybody and so that Excuse my language, fucks me up. Here I am recruiting, putting people in, believing. You know, I, I was serving the punch. <laughs> I was serving the punch, and here I am, like, holy crap! Hold on, what, what are you telling me? And so that gets me to a spiral, spiral downward turn of drinking, depression, and it got to the point where I spent an entire week in my bed and I couldn't get out. Um. Suicide? I don't think suicide came across. I, I, I don't think I thought of, but I was depressed and I couldn't function. And so then my numbers started dropping. I wasn't I wasn't making the phone calls. I was just I was in Santa Maria. I was I was like the furthest away from recruiting station Los Angeles. I didn't have any other Marines to talk to. Nobody understood me. And so then um, what happens there is that. Uh, I tell my command officer, Major Phil Parkhurst, who used to fly Reagan around. He, he was a very proud man of, of because of you know his him flying Ronald Reagan around Marine One. Very proud man, and he made it known, made it known to everybody. And I, I said, sir, I got an issue. I can't. I something's going on. I said, do you need to go talk to a psychologist? I go, yeah. I'll, and I was willing to. This is how crazy it is. So I end up talking to somebody. A psychologist, he writes up a big old write-up, says, you know, uh, Sergeant Vega is unable to de-associate uh, de de or unpersonalize from the, what happened. He needs to be put back with other Marines. I go to my command officer. I give him the letter. Command officer says, nope, recommendation. Go back out there and give me my three. We need to make mission. I did that fucking three, four times, four times, four letters. I still have the letters. And on the fourth letter... I lost my shit, and I finally told him, hey, I no, I'm not going to do this. So they brought me here closer to home to Thousand Oaks. Uh, they put a, a staff sergeant in charge of me, a guy by the name of Staff Sergeant Miracle, and his thing was I make miracles happen. I wanted to kill the guy. He has he sets up an appointment with me with some guy that has epilepsy. You can't. That's a disqualifier, but he wants me to talk to the guy about joining the Marine Corps. I go, you can't do that. So I finally get pissed off. I'm like, no, screw you. You kid, I'm sorry. I'm sorry he led you down a bad road, but you're never going to be in the service. You can't go home and figure something out. And I felt like shit. Kid was ready to cry. I closed the door, and I went off on this. I, I went off on that staff sergeant. I fucking, I wanted to kill him. And at the time, back in the time, we had uh, what's called a schedule and results book, something you know, kind of a, a binder of some sort where you would take down all your, you would, uh, all the phone calls, you you would number them, all your results that lead to leads, to leads to a point. It was total sales, total sales. And when your numbers were down, 
the recruit instructor, the recruiter instructor would come out and analyze your your books and say, well, hey, you're not making enough phone calls. Hey, you're not making enough, you know, person-to-person contacts. And so so I take my schedule result books, I walk over to the toilet, throw in the toilet, and I piss on it and tell them to go fuck off. And so then I get called in front of the man. The man says, did you threaten the staff sergeant? I go, absolutely. Are you going to kill him? Absolutely. Did you throw your schedule result book in the toilet and pee on it? Absolutely. And you're refusing to go back out and recruit? Yes, sir. I said, take take whatever you want. And here's the ironic part. When I was on recruiting duty, I was awarded the Navy Marine Corps Medal for Heroism. And they had they had used me as a tool to say, hey, come and meet your local Marine Corps scout sniper hero and be recruited by him. And I no sooner that I went from hero, I went to zero. Uh, they reduced me in rank. They uh, had me report to recruiting station Los Angeles. Uh, my punishment for a month was to go to Long Beach and clean out these uh, large warehouses that were rat that were infested with rats and pigeons. And they would give me a box lunch. The van would drive me out there, drop me off, and I just sweep all day and. You know, in my mind, I was like, you know, fuck these guys. I'll make this place look like immaculate. And that's probably the first time I thought about suicide. I remember I was there one day pushing, pushing the broom, pushing the broom, just thinking about everything. And I'm like, fuck. From from hero to zero. And I thought about hanging myself. My son knew all this. That's why I'm, I'm telling you all this. My son knew all this. For the longest time, I did not display... Uh, my Navy Marine Corps medal, where it said heroism. It says heroism on it because so much pain, you know, there's, there's so much that it's, you got your primary victims, you got your secondary victims, and you just got all the shit, that, you know, all the frag that just went out on that incident because some fucking hotshot pilot wanted to fly low and scare the grunts in the back. And, and so I, I started to display my medal. I had it framed and everything after 9-11. I had joined the Navy Reserves and was attached to Naval Special Warfare Group 1 that supported SEAL teams. And uh, and my son would go out out there with me. And, you know, so he I didn't I didn't want my son to be part of the Marine Corps because of what I went through and the sour taste. My wife was with me those last that those last few years, and she actually saved me from killing myself. She was a, she was the stability in my life. Uh, fast forward, my son's graduating high school. Uh, just like any other eighteen year old trying to figure out what to do in life, I remember one of the things he said to me: he "Goes man, I can't wait for summer." I go, "No, son. After 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 senior year, when you graduate, there's no more fucking summers." It's all, you got to work. There's, summer only exists when you're going to school. And so um, I think that was a shocker to him. But so, <laughs> he would, you know, he would uh, he would work with me. He would add odds and ends. But he just, he really wanted to be a Marine. And my wife basically told him, no, you need to go to school first. Get that under your belt because you're not going to go under like a grunt like your dad did. Go under at least as an officer. And then you could, you could join the Marine Corps. He... Wasn't interested in school. His mind was just set in the Marine Corps. But again, he was not a runner. He was not a runner. And so the running part would always hurt him. Um, 
He could do his pull-ups. He could do his sit-ups. He could swim like a fish, but running just was not part of who he was. Um, so in 2017, he had he had enlisted. The recruiters pulled some fast shit on my son. That again, and I stayed out of my son's business because as a father, you know, as as you're trying to support their dis- adult decisions, right? I stayed out of it. But when I started asking them questions, I was like, oh, these guys are just trying to get you for a number. And I went over to the recruiting station and I I chewed out the gunnery sergeant and go, hey, and they had no clue that I was a former Marine or recruiter because they those bastards never even had the common decency. My son told them, hey, my dad's a former Marine, but they those guys never had the common decency to either to come knock on my door and say, hey, I'm rec- sergeant or whatever, I'm recruiting your son. They never even did that. Pretty shitty, I see it. And so uh, my son is scheduled to leave for boot camp in February of 2018, uh, right on his birthday. He was born on February 15th. So he's scheduled to leave like on the 14th or 13th of February of 2018. <clears throat> he doesn't ship out because right at Christmas time, he got the flu. And, uh, and my son was the type of kid that – when you got sick, right? When you get sick, there he was somebody who was sick. There's no faking it. You know, there's some people that could work through an illness, not him. Knocked him flat out. So that hurt his runtime. So then they moved him to March to leave. Well, this is where I think it gets kind of funky. Because knowing that the months of January, February, March, April. And this is a Marine Corps term I'm going to use here. The herds, the herds, in other words, the platoon recruits at that are going to boot camp are very small. The herds get small because those months aren't, aren't good months that, that produce, you know, recruits to go to boot camp. It's all about the numbers. You, got, you either got to show that you have numbers coming in or you lose part of that to the yearly budget. So... And there's a whole backstory to that, too. So my son um, ends up going. The recruiter says, yeah, Patrick passed his 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 runtime. You know, they part of the runtime was uh, a mile and a half under 13 minutes. I think he was hitting 15 and 16s. And there was no way him recovering from a cold that he was going to run under 13 minutes. I, I That was not. I, I had never believed that, and uh, so he goes off to boot camp. <clears throat> uh, when you get to boot camp, you know, you or basic training, you know, you're going to get uh, a number of vaccinations. So, you, so within the first uh, 48 hours, they're keeping you awake. They're moving you around like cattle. They're screaming and yelling at you. Just to that's just part of the indoctrination, the disorientation, just to start breaking you down, to start building you up like a marine, a soldier, or whatever sailor. And so then, then you're getting these vaccinations. And I'm not an anti-vaxxer. Don't 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 get me on that. But what what typically happens after you get a vaccination? What do they tell you? Well, you have an immune response. You need to rest because you're going to have flu-like symptoms. There you go. You get and and to this day, I still don't know how many vaccinations or what type of vaccination my son got. But I know there's multiple. 
at least five or six, if not seven. So within the first week, um, they go to run their initial strength tests. So it's it's a mile and a half run, sit-ups, pull-ups. He completes he, he's successful in the pull-ups and the sit-ups, mile and a half run. He's like at again, like a 16 or 15 minute time. So he's over. So what happens is that they move him, they transition him to a physical conditioning platoon. The physical conditioning platoon is for those recruits who can't make the run time, the sit-up, or the pull-up time. And they were basically you're going to work out in this platoon. So your 13 weeks at Marine Corps boot camp comes to it kind of becomes uh, it just holds in place until you're able to make that runtime. Then you go back into your training. And so Patrick gets put into physical conditioning platoon. Again, for those, and this is part of the story that's a little bit complicated, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to get through it. The physical conditioning platoon is part of special training battalion. So battalion is a large, it's bigger than the platoon or a company. In special training battalion, you have what's called the MRP, medical rehab platoon. You have the physical conditioning platoon. You have the separation platoon. So you have all these recruits that are in, in flux. Either they're injured or they need to work out or they need to, um, they're, they're leaving for whatever reason. So it's, it's and I hate to categorize it this way, but it's it's a gaggle of misfits. Because as I learned there's some there's some recruits there that have been there 500 days, 200 days, 800 days. Okay, and I said Marine Corps boot camp is 13 weeks, 90 to 91 days. Okay, so these kids, and I call them kids for the most part, 17, 18, 19, some 20-year-olds are put into this you know, this this purgatory, because you don't know if you're coming or going until either you make your runtime, make your your pull-ups or your sit-ups, or you get or you heal from whatever injury you had. They're in this flux of unknown. And there's some weird shit that's going on there. And my son got thrown in there and he was and he was sick when he got thrown in there. The last time I spoke to him, he had like a raspy voice. <clears throat> that was on a Sunday. I don't know what happened to him uh, after I talked to him Sunday, Monday, or Tuesday, but I do know that Wednesday he goes to sick call, <clears throat> complaining of a sore throat and sick. They give him the typical, uh, you know, over-the-counter uh, ibuprofen and something else, throat lozenges. Uh, he's throwing up as well, and they tell him to, uh, to uh, eat bland food. And they gave him some type of anti-nausea medication. I can't remember the name of it. Is it Z uh, Zofran, you said? Possibly, yeah. Yes. And and so that's Wednesday. Thursday doesn't get any better. By Friday morning, he hasn't eaten. He, he's not been able to drink. Uh, he couldn't make – he couldn't walk to – sick call so they had to wheel him over there in a wheelchair on thursday he couldn't walk to go get a haircut so they had to wheel him over there i'm like okay what you know uh you know at what point does the adult in the room step in and then on friday from what we were told we were verbally told this is this does not exist in any written report and this is very odd 
um, that they went out for their qualifying run, those who need to make their run. Hopefully, because every Friday, you know, if you're in the PCP, uh, physical conditioning platoon, every Friday was your opportunity to demonstrate that you could make it and move on to your next training level. And so they went to the track. Uh, he attempted to run, collapsed, hurt both his knees. The Navy corpsman that was there put uh, large band-aids on his knees. The drill instructors put him in the back of a golf cart and took him back to the barracks. I don't know what happened after that until right about 4 o'clock in the evening when they go to eat evening dinner, evening chow. I, From what I was told and from what I read, he was unable to walk across the chow line. He had to be helped by recruits on either side. Somebody else carried his food tray. They sat him down. They put his tray in front of him. He attempted to eat but vomited all over his food tray. They took him back to the barracks. He vomits again, just constant vomiting. Can't hold water, can't hold food. This is like three or four days in that he can't take any type of nourishment or liquid in. Uh, again, knowing my son, the type of kid that he was, that when he's sick, he's sick. There is no, no doubt in your mind that this kid is sick. So I'm just kind of picturing in my mind, like, where the hell is the adult in the room? Where's the leadership in the room? How can you not notice that the kid has to be helped across the food line because he's too weak to hold his tray? Now, had, had he been to, to hospital? Had he had any blood work done? Had he been checked out for any sort of you know, head trauma, anything like that? They, 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 he, had, he had gone to medical. Um, at medical, they took blood. They can't find his blood vials. <laughs> uh, just very basic, basic level of care. Piss poor. Uh, and so his last day, Friday, okay, you got to stop and think on a Friday, okay, as a Marine, as a police officer, as somebody who, who's working anywhere, last thing you want to do is hang out after three o'clock on a Friday. You want to get the hell out of wherever you're at and go work or go play. So there's a transition of drill instructors, duty drill instructors, okay. And so the drill instructor—I I, I don't know who because I, I can't make heads and tails of the report because the reports that we that we received from the Marine Corps and NCIS—they're all heavily redacted. Can't read. You can't tell who's who. So somebody goes up to the command duty officer, who I do know his name. His name is Captain Brandon McCulley, and tells him, "Hey, Vega is still throwing up." And Brandon McCulley at that point says, well, you know what? We're not going to call EMS for one recruit who's throwing up. And that right there, my friend, sealed the deal for my son. The captain of the day said, no, we're not going to call EMS for one recruit. That's so what does the drone circuit do? He literally goes back to his duty hut, orders Domino's pizza. It's in the report. And leaves Patrick to the care of other recruits. This is like fucking Lord of the Flies. And he's leaving them, he's leaving Patrick to the care of the other recruits. Again, a bunch of misfits. Some have been there for a week, like my son. Others have been there for several hundred days. And, and, and I'll, I'll kind of jump forward in time. I finally found out who these, who these, who these kids were, some of them. 
I, I finally was able to conduct my own investigation. And I actually talked to one of the guys, one of the head guys, recruits that were there at the time, 500 days when, when he met my son. And as a good investigator that I am, I asked him questions. I allowed him to talk. I, let, I allowed him to boast. And when he was boasting about you know his time, his tenure as a recruit, he tells me what comes out of his mouth. I was if I was if, if I would have been there in person, I probably would have choked him. But he says, "Yeah, I ran. I ran the barracks like a prison cell. I ran it like a prison cell." So that just tells me the type of mentality that my son bumped into as he's sick and as he's weak and as he's trying to get through this. Because in Marine Corps boot camp, last thing you want to do is show weakness. You want to show that you're sucking it up and that you're able to make it. And my son was all of that. He's trying to suck it up. That was one of the words we always talked about, suck it up. And so this, <laughs> these guys gave a shit about my son, didn't give a shit about my son because he was weak. And they ignored him. The drill instructor writes on the, so there's a fire watch. A fire watch is a, uh, is a, uh, it starts at nighttime when the lights are turned off, everybody goes to bed. There's typically three recruits per hour, per shift that walk. One walks around, roves around. The other one stands at the front door. The other one stands at the back door. And if there's any type of fire, emergency, whatever, they give the alarm. Well, the drill instructor allows this one recruit in particular to write out the fire watch roster for that Friday, Friday, Saturday evening. This recruit takes upon himself to put, instead of one hour, he gives two-hour watches. He chooses to take the one from 11 to 1, and nobody knows where the drill instructor's at. But what the drill instructor did do on the fire watch roster, he wrote on top in his own writing that the roving fire watch would check on Vega every 10 minutes. Every 10 minutes. So why would you, why would somebody choose to check on somebody Every 10 minutes. If they weren't worried about them. If they weren't worried about them, yeah. Why not every half an hour? And so somewhere along that time, um, these guys that were supposed to be watching my son left them un unattended alone. And he basically uh, must, I, I believe he vomited and uh, choked on his own vomit. And you, and you have a better, what is the term on that? Yeah, I mean, um, oh my goodness. Blanking now, aspiration, aspiration of vomit. Aspiration, but what's yeah. so, because obviously I'm thinking about this through a, a paramedics lens now, the usually the only kind of person that you would come across that would aspirate, that would be, you know, that would be a stroke victim, an overdose, alcohol, you know, things where you have no ability to turn, to spit, to cough, you know, which is a natural reflex. So that's what I find really strange as well. The level of sickness that he must have had to not be able to clear his airway, you know, really to me, you know, paints the picture that he was definitely needed to be in a hospital by this point. Yeah. But nobody gave a shit. Nobody gave a shit. And that's, that's again, you know, we, I, I know it's, it's taken a lot to get here and everything that I've experienced as a police officer and as in the Marine Corps and, you know, it's just heartbreaking, heartbreaking, fucking heartbreaking. And, 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 I'll, and, I'll, and I'll give you another piece of just how fucked up this is. 
I was in San Diego that week with my wife. Uh, we actually had driven onto the base, parked in front of his barracks Thursday night. And I was going to get out of the car. My wife said, no, don't do that to him. You'll embarrass him. And I told her, you know what? I, yeah. You know, and I should, or, 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 or that's, that's, that's very wrong the way I said it. I don't think it was my wife that said, don't do it. I think it was just a conversation of, you know, should I get out and go see him? And I think it was like, no, it's not embarrassing. I think that's what it was. I, I shouldn't put that on. A, that's wrong how I said that. So I didn't get, I, he was right there. He was fucking right there. I just needed to get out of the car, go to the duty hut, say, hey, you know, former Marine, scout sniper hero, use that bullshit. Just want to motivate my boy, and I and I could have immediately immediately known that something was fucking wrong, and I didn't. I'm sure that haunts you to this day. Uh, I can't think of it, man. I can't. You, you in 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 a situation like this, in a lot of situations I've been in, through my years of treatment for my complex PTSD, I. I I have a terrific, terrific therapist through the VA, um, Dr. Kaiser, and she's been, she's been, she's, she, I've been seeing her for years, and she knew how scared I was of Patrick going into the Marine Corps, how hesitant I was, and then she immediately was there when Patrick passed away, and then she dealt with all my other bullshit, but, but just from years and years that you can't dwell on could have, should have, would have. I just can't. I can't. And I can't allow myself to do that because the depression that I've experienced in the past when I was deep, dark in that fucking hole, nobody gets you out of that hole, man. It's, it's, it's the only way that can get you out of that hole is yourself. And unfortunately for a lot of people, man, they don't come out of that hole. And I know that if I go into that dark, depressed hole, I, I, it's going to be, impossible because of all the shit that's happened to me well going back on that just for a second all the things that you went through are traditionally the things that you would would be in a conversation of veteran or first responder mental health well you had the dinghy incident you had the helicopter incident you had all the things you saw in rampart and and Oxnard as well that's why you're struggling but the powerful part of your story and i think it underlines a real elephant in the room in the mental health you know conversation obviously childhood trauma is a huge part which you know that's again that's a you know the foundation of someone's mental health but organizational betrayal now we're going to get into that in a second of this generation too but you stood resilient until the point where you were betrayed as a recruiter of all things and now you're holding a broom in a rat infested warehouse so I think that's a very important thing just to underline for a second is you lived through all these truly traumatic events, but it was when the organization that you'd given everything for turned around and threw you under the bus, as do agencies after law enforcement, you know, to have a gray area call or get shot on the line of duty and then get, get dismissed. I mean, all these things that I've heard on the show. Throw your ankle and get... Well, exactly. So that's the thing. I think it's just important to highlight it. There's not really much to even expand on, but the power 
the the mental ill health power of simple organizational stress or organizational betrayal that really isn't in these conversations usually. No, you're right. You're right. I mean, you know, if you, if you really want to stop and talk about it, it's just the Catholic Church. You, you talk about a mindfuck. I mean, I I I I remember um, early on when I started this fight publicly that I took a week off from work to go stand in front of the cathedral in downtown LA because in my mind it was its inaugural year of the cathedral in downtown LA, or the Queen, uh, Queen of the Angels. And to me, that's the pinnacle point. Uh, that, that That is the epic center of Catholicism. And how are you guys going to celebrate one of the, the you know, the, the most holy week in the, liturgic, in the liturgical calendar, which is, you know, Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday without mention, mentioning anything about the victims of childhood sexual abuse that, again, Carter Mahoney was very knee deep in. So I took a week off of work and I and I just went out there and I planted myself and I held a sign that said victims deserve truth and honesty. And I didn't scream. I didn't yell. I just stood there and I fasted for the whole week and I slept on the concrete. And before you knew it, those I don't know, people that were showing up, it was incredible. It was an incredible week. But during that week, I realized that everything I believed in Um, wasn't real, or wasn't it? Was you know the bottom fell out. To to have, I mean, you had to stop and think. As a Mexican, I, I mean, I have Catholicism raging through my veins and my DNA. I come from conquistadors and the Mayans. You know, I, I'm. I'm all of that. Catholicism is what made Mexico. I come from Mexico. My parents come from Mexico. And to, and, and and growing up in the barrio in the hood, whatever you want to call it, even at gang member funerals, you know, you got the Virgin Mary, Arle Guadalupe plastered everywhere. Everybody wears a cross, you know, they walk around with rosaries. So for me to stand there in front of the cathedral, try and bring awareness to what happened to me, and it just uh, the bottom fell out, man. That was an impactful moment, and I was just like, "Wow!" And even when when I got injured as a, you know, well, you, well, let me go back to the Marine Corps. And you say the Marine Corps, you know, yeah, from hero to zero. Here I am, elevated to this platform. You know, I mean, the fucking medal says heroism. Stop and think about that heroism. I'm like the cowardly lion, and you know, the Wizard of Oz. I finally gets his medal. Says courage. I felt, you know, I got a medal that says heroism, but holy crap, then just to be just just chopped down, boom, boom, boom. And, you know, he's a bad example. He didn't want to go out there and recruit. Don't and everybody turned their backs on me. And in the police department, fuck, officer of the year. I, I started all sorts of uh, at-risk youth programs, you know, no bad shootings. You know, I, I, I took a couple good tumbles and hits, but. Not a bad cop, good cop, but man, you know, I stirred the pot a little bit. They weren't happy with me, and it was a swift kick in the ass, and I was done. Yeah, there's a lot of that. Well, I and think now, 
and I'm sorry to interrupt you, but even now, so much more with the death of my son, with the death of my son. I love my country. I love my country. I will do anything for my country. And I have. And I love the men and women that serve our country. However, however, what has been shown and demonstrated to me, again, by the Department of Defense, by the Marine Corps, by NCIS, is a lack of respect, a lack, a lack of empathy, or even caring for the individual person who's passed away in a non-combat environment. So I want to get to the kind of what happens next element, but I think just to set the stage, there's an important piece of the puzzle that has its history buried in a World War II hero and a fire. So let's kind of backtrack, educate us, because I, I was totally unaware until very, very recently as well. If you want to tell the kind of history of the doctrine, and then we'll walk back through to, to present day as well, not present day, but 2018 with Patrick. Sure, absolutely. So, um, and I'll start with Patrick. So when Patrick passed away, and like I said, there's this, the answers weren't coming and, you know, and it's, you're, you know, we're trying to ask questions. We're trying to figure it out. We, you know, we get to a point where I guess I got to talk to an attorney, talk to a very close friend of mine, an attorney. And that's the first time I heard, well, you can't do anything. Cause you know, in your mind, you're thinking, well, fuck, there's a wrongful left. Uh, there's a wrongful uh, death lawsuit here. How, how can they be such idiots? How can they let this happen? Right. That's what we're thinking. And, very good friend of mine who's an attorney says uh, there's something called the Ferris Doctrine. F as in Frank, E-R-E-S, Ferris. And I'm like, and I, and I couldn't even, like, you know, I have bad hearing already. Like, what? Ferris. And he spells it out for me. And I'm like, what is that? And, you know, you lose a child in whatever circumstance. I mean, Fuck your your world is rocked. It comes to a screeching halt. It is. They're supposed to bury us. You know, we're not supposed to bury our kids. It is. I I, I there's no words to explain how profound the hurt is, the loneliness, or how omnipresent it is. It's in everything that I do, the loss of my son. And it's not intentional. It's just, it's just there. Um, so we start trying to figure out the Ferris doctor. And so I eventually contacted, um, <laughs> again, when I tell you I, I live the Forrest Gump life, this is, this is part of it. So I contacted my friend who's now a congressman who sits on the House Armed Services Committee. He and I went to Marine Corps boot camp together. We actually grew up. Um, he still remembers as we left for boot camp that I had a bag of tamales and I shared a tamale with him. <laughs> uh, salute, salute Carbajal from uh, Santa Barbara. I reached out to Salud as a friend. I said, hey, you got to help me on this because I, I don't know what's going on. I don't understand it. And as I did more research, my daughter did more research, we started figuring out that this Ferris doctrine is a monster. 
And it all goes back to, and, and to understand the Ferris Doctrine, you have to understand where it comes from. And so uh, back during World War II, uh, Lieutenant Rudolph Ferris, United States Army, uh, jumped in pre-D-Day uh, into Normandy, fought through the hedgerows, fought in the Battle of the Bulge, survived that, and was part of the liberation of Europe. Fast forward to 1947, I think it's December 10th, 1947, he's in upstate New York, uh, still in the Army. Uh, he's with a bunch of other Army officers. They're staying in a uh, a World War II barracks. Uh, and when I say World War II barracks, it was built during World War II, so it was, again, very... Very uh, Spartan barracks, just, just some wood, some beds, two stories, there it is. And it had a boiler in there for heat. And he hadn't either made a comment or had mentioned that the boiler is 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 in not good working conditions. That's going to blow up and kill us. So guess what happens? It blew up. It killed him immediately. Um, and it killed, I believe, four other Army officers. And the widows at the time, the widow, Lieutenant Rudolph Ferris, took a newly passed law. And I'll explain that because this is very important. They, they, in 1946, the Federal Torts Claim Act, the Federal Torts Claim Act, the FTCA, was passed by Congress. The Federal Torts Claim Act comes from... An incident from 1945, and I'm sorry if I'm going back in time. And no, no, people. but but we need to we need to paint the picture because again, I was completely unaware, and this is going to be news to a lot of people, many who have served that maybe this will actually affect positively. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. So, 1945, uh, there is a B-25 Mitchell bomber that's going to take off and I think fly somewhere Midwest. The pilot's told, don't take off, heavy weather. The pilot decides to take off with, I believe, another crewman on board. And they take this route from Newark, New Jersey, that takes them over Manhattan. And this B-25 Mitchell crashes into the Empire State Building, killing those on board and killing 11 civilians inside the building and around the building. So back in 1945, that happens. What, what happens back then that you as a surviving family say, hey, what was that plane flying, you know, in bad weather, so low over a city, crashing into a building? You know, the, the, the government's responsible. We want to be compensated. So what happened back in those days is that you would actually have to approach your representative, your congressperson, and they would have to write a bill. And then they would have to go through that whole process of what, a, you know, gets ratified, gets accepted, gets voted on, and then you get compensated. And Congress at the time was inundated with all sorts of compensation bills that Congress didn't want to deal with it anymore. So in 1946, they, they, they wrote up, they agreed upon, uh, and, they, and they passed the Federal Torts Claim Act of 1946. So 1945 was a catalyst to push Congress to finally, you know, say, hey, you know what, as the United States of America, we give up sovereign immunity. 
sovereign immunity. In other words, the king can be sued by the people. And that's what happened in 1946. But what's important of the Federal Claims Torts Act is that those 13 exceptions to that rule. And one of them was, I think subsection J is, and I'm paraphrasing this, that active duty service members can sue the federal government as long as they're not in combat. Okay. And, and it's not written that way. I'm paraphrasing it. But, you know, that subsection, that exemption rule says that as long as you're not in combat, you could sue the federal government. So this is 1946. 1947, early 1947, the Department of War, the Department of the Navy come together and create the Department of Defense. So 1947 is the founding year of the Department of Defense, and we have our first chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So stop and think about what that means. That the Department of Defense of the United States of America projects power and might, full authority. And now you have 19, uh, late uh, December 10th, 1947, Lieutenant Rudolph Ferris, Captain Turner, a couple other men burned to death in a fire that should have been prevented. No exit signs, no escape ladders, one entrance into the barracks. The boiler was right in front of the only exit door, and these men burned to death. And their widows had a case using the 1946 Federal Torch Claim Act. As it moves forward to the courts, they're winning their cases, but the newly formed Department of Defense, again, you just, and again, I'm just imagining that they're saying, hey, we can't lose, we can't be held accountable. How can we be held accountable? We're the Department of Defense. We project power and might, you know. And so they fight it, it goes all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And on December 4th, 1950, we have, uh, a dissertation or an opinion given by the U.S. Supreme Court Justice that I think it's 12 pages. You can find it on our website, saveourservicemembers.org. You can read it for yourself. But in there about 11 or 12 times, it says, because the service member is incident to service or in the service of this country, he cannot sue the federal government. Okay, so again... If the service member's in the service of his country, instant service, he cannot sue the federal government. So the U.S. Supreme Court took what Congress had passed, what, what Congress had written and ratified, and has codified it in written language as law, and gave an opinion and muddied the water between combat and non-combat. I get that you can, as a service member, if you tell me, hey, let's go take Mount Suribachi, and I get blown away and something stupid happens, but that's the fog of war, I get it. You don't sue the government of that. But in sanctioned training environments or negligent or hazing or whatever it is, there has to be accountability. So just think, since 1950, since 1950 to this very moment that you and I are talking, that you folks are listening to, our Department of Defense has acted with impunity. They do not get held accountable at all. They, they're the good old boys club. They'll take care of themselves all the time from the inside. And you see it and you read it. You know, this admiral, this captain was relieved of duty because we lost, we lost confidence. And that's about as far as you get. But beyond that, there is no true accountability. Very, very rare does the pendulum 
ever swing upward and hit or touch any of the flag grade officers. Four stars, three stars, two stars, one stars, admirals, generals. Those guys never get hit with any type of negligence. They always retire with a full pension and full VA benefits, clearance from the State Department to go consult some in some other foreign country. And they'll get to write a book and they'll get hired by Boeing, Northrop, or whoever. But fuck the the, the level of disaster by poor leadership is you know, count the tombstones. So I don't know if that gave an explanation or not. No, it did. And it's it's so sad because obviously a perfect recent example was the absolute travesty that was the withdrawal from Afghanistan and how many tombstones, not only allied nations, but Afghanis as well came out of that. And, and I've heard, you know, I'm not, I'm not a military member, I'm a firefighter, but um, you know, a lot of people have come on here and all said the same thing. Where's the accountability there? Me, as a firefighter paramedic, the example I would use was the COVID epidemic. All the focus on vaccines and masks and hand sanitizer, where was the actual responsibility to educate on the underlying health of this country and improve? We had two years to improve it. Where were those people? Left and right. That spanned two presidents. Where was the accountability there? So trust me, I mean, you're preaching to the choir. Different environment, same same philosophy, though. No, absolutely, absolutely. But 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 you got to stop and think here. So you know, and again, our 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 uh, our republic is built on uh, you know, and, and let me back up. So so you know, we have three branches of the government, right? We have the executive the judicial and the legislative, okay? The president, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, and our the House and the Senate, okay? But in 1947, boom, we added the fourth one, believe it or not, Department of Defense. They answered to nobody. Just here recently, there was an audit that was done, an independent audit, and they can't account for, they, they, they got like a, not even an A, they got like an F, Department of Defense, they can't even account for money. But as I've gone through this journey seeking accountability, and I'm talking to lawmakers, holy crap, I've learned a lot. I I never knew that there was a uh, the, the Congressional Budget Office. It's a CBO. You know how many times I've heard that? You know how many times I've been asked, well, how much is this going to cost? <laughs> like, oh, really? And what's and what's an excuse on language, what's fucked up about this is. Is 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 that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, and you know we're we're killing we kill our service members in great numbers in non-combat related incidents here in the United States. We kill so many. Again, if you go to our website, saveourservicemembers.org. Just take a look at the recruit deaths. Take a look at the – we have a uh, – I think we have a list of 5,000 names that we're trying to input into a data bank. So you could actually look up, read the obituary, look at a picture of the headstone. Because this is we're, – we're not bullshit. This is factual. But there isn't any website that captured all of that. The Department of Defense will never compile this and give it freely to anybody. And And so we have a problem. Those who protect our freedom are the least protected. Isn't that crazy? 
Stop and think about that. Those who protect our freedom right now, this very moment, are the least protected. Myself, any other veteran, your, your father-in-law who's a veteran, any active duty service member, right now, we're, we were and are second-class citizens. You could come across the border, set foot on American soil, and the Constitution of the United States of America will provide more protection for you than an active duty service member in harm's way. You could be a convicted pedophile and, and demand a sex altering, whatever operation or whatever. You have more rights than an active duty service member. What is wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this picture is that our lawmakers don't want to take on the Department of Defense. They don't want to, you know, how much is this going to cost? Because it comes down to budget. Every year we have the national, the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. And that's where, you know, they all pile in and they say, hey, we need a couple more aircraft carriers. We need a couple more tanks. Uh, we need more money for recruiting, blah, 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 blah. And they throw all their numbers in there and then it's up to Congress to take a look at it, add, take out, whatever. And then it goes up to the Senate, then it goes to the president, and he signs off. Every year it happens. Okay. In the NDAA, um, that's there's a budget and there's there's black money in there. There's like a there's a whole portion of that that you don't even know about it. We don't know as taxpayers, but there's a shitload of money that goes off to other countries. Other and I get it. I get it. We have to keep those bad people away. However, those who are keeping those bad people away are the least protected again. In 2020, Richard Stasco, Richard Stasco, um, with the help of uh, Congress, was able to introduce the Richard Stasco Medical Malpractice Act. All right. And in that Medical Malpractice Act, Congress allotted, and, and I hope I'm, I'm, I believe I'm correct on this number, $400 million for the next 10 years to talk about to address military medical malpractice cases. Okay. That, that was 2020. <clears throat> 2019, in 2019, the Department of the, the, the Department of Defense gathered as much information as to the types of cases that they were going to have to pay out for regarding medical malpractice cases, okay? <clears throat> my son, my son's case falls into this. And they ran what's called a red team exercise. You ever heard of a red team? Um, I, it sounds familiar, but I'm not remembering exactly what it is. Okay, so red team exercise. And then this, and again, you have to understand that it's coming out of the mouth of the Department of Defense. Okay, when you Department of Defense says, hey, we're running the red team exercise, that means that, hey, we're simulating that we're fighting the Chinese, the Russians, the North Koreans, the Taliban, ISIS. Okay, <laughs> so what they did is that they gathered all these attorneys for two months and they ran all the known cases through this red team exercise to defeat every case. And then with that information, the Department of Defense wrote the interim rules for the 2020 Richard Stakeholder Medical Malpractice Act. So under those 
those uh, stipulations, basically every attempted case would ultimately fail? Yes, you are so correct on that. To this date of that $400 million that was allotted through the NDAA for the next 10 years, so that's $40 million a year that they could settle military malpractice cases, right? Medical malpractice cases. They've only settled two cases so far that we know of. One settled for $10,000, the other one settled for $20,000. And they've denied multiple cases because they changed the definition of what a military medical treatment facility is. There's over 700, almost uh, close to 800 medical military treatment facilities. And the military, military uh, U.S. Department of Defense Military Medicine will boast about how great they are. But in this NDAA, they they narrow, they click, 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 and they only have like a hundred and so hundred under 150 identified. But under you ever heard of the GAO? I haven't again. The, the Government Accountability Office. The Government Accountability. Exactly what that means is what they do. Government Accountability Office. They're the ones that do all the audits, they're the ones that track everything. And the GAO in a hearing this uh, past uh, spring revealed, and I have the documents, that the, the department, the military medical system has failed. And we had all the uh, president in the congressional hearing, we had the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the Surgeon General of the Department of Defense, Army, Navy, Air Force. And they all gave these great big talks. And when Congress asked them, well, hey, we have the GAO witness here saying that you guys have not met, uh, you know, standard uh, reporting procedures. I mean, it's, it's, it is frightening the type of medical uh, care that our active duty service members are given. It is frightening. But, hey, you know, uh, this is what we're up against. This is, this is what I'm trying to change. I would have never known this, but – you know, here my son passes away, we start asking questions, we start digging through all this stuff, and holy crap, it, it's just, it is just a disaster. It's a disaster from day one, and I know that I had emailed you a couple of uh, pages, which I know that when we started talking, you said, it, it, again, it's it's hard to make sense of it. Yeah, well, well I want to get to that, because I think that's that's the the... The last piece of this puzzle was we round this off, but I want to make sure that we, we cover it. Of course, things are going to happen, especially in, in an organization as large as the military, as large as, you know, LAFD. I mean, some of these massive organizations, the, you know, people will fall through the net and it will be tragic and we'll look back and realize it was preventable. But the only thing we can do after that point is take ownership of it. And therefore, then once it's out there, you can start figuring out what went wrong and make sure it never happens again. It okay, doesn't. So, 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 and I'm sorry to interrupt you. And I and I and I completely agree with your view. And I'll bring up another tragic scenario that I was involved in. Please, very good friend. Another, a very good friend of mine, Jim Jensen, was on the SWAT team in Oxnard PD. Uh, there was a call out. You know, multiple locations, bad guys, drug dealers that we're going to take down. Jim goes into a house with his team, goes up the second floor. Uh, somehow gets separated from his team member. 
at the base of the stairs, clears the rooms, comes out, and that team member shoots him three times in the back with an automatic shotgun, kills him. Okay. I learned from my friend's death because everybody was pissed and they were saying, oh man, his wife's going to sue the shit out of the city, sue the SWAT team. And I was probably the only guy saying, oh, good, she should because we're fucked up. We're a bunch of cowboys, piss poor training, bad equipment, and disproved it. He died. And she sued the shit out of the, auction, the city of Oxnard and she changed the makeup of our SWAT team into something better. And it's a pre, it's a premier SWAT team right now in Ventura County. She forced that. But you know what forced it? Accountability. Accountability, my friend. That's what forced it. We don't have that in the in the Department of Defense. We don't have that. Well, that was that was what I was getting to. So so yeah, you're not sorry. No, 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 but it is good. I'm glad that you put that in there because that's another very personal story. You're not saying the entire Marine Corps is fucked up. You know, you've worked alongside some incredible people and undersized some, um, excuse me, under some amazing leadership. I've had all kinds of amazing Marines on this show. And I'm the same with police, same with fire, et cetera. But the problem is when these kind of things happen, and I've had it in fire departments, I've seen numerous new, uh, near misses that were swept under the carpet. My last place was about to be the recipient of the Pulse nightclub shooting. Just a miracle of timing. There were, happened to be a bunch of law enforcement officers and they have video footage of him leaving the Disney area, driving straight to Pulse and shooting and murdering all those poor people instead. That was never fucking spoken about. When I, I was overseas, I came back a few days later, never heard a fucking word about that. So I, this is a very personal thing to me. If we do not take ownership of it, of course there is an, an element then that you are going to have a financial compensation if someone dies under your care. But equally as important is that when you take ownership of it, you change things, you change regulations, SOPs, training, equipment, staffing, whatever it is, to ensure you lost one, but you make sure you don't lose any more. So talk to me about what actually happened with Patrick and what needs to change, you know, in, in, in his memory. Sure. Sure. And, 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 and I appreciate what you said, but I'm on a punch back a little bit. Please punch <laughs> away. Remember I stood in front of the man after talking to four psychologists saying that, Hey, I'm fucked up. I'm going back in 1989. PTSD wasn't called PTSD, but I was going through PTSD. And he looked at me and he, he read the doctor's note. And he goes, nope, these are recommendations. Go back. So that's the issue. When my son passed away, okay, the Marine Command investigation that was produced was produced by the same command where my son died. Hmm. Okay, so you, you can't get... You could say, yeah, oh, no, 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 we're, we're open and transparent and we're, you know, uh, we're going to do this, you know, fair and square. I highly doubt that. The Marine Corps community, especially the officer community in that small of a duty station is very small and tight. Number one, a lot of, um, a lot of close contact. I mentioned Captain Brandon McCulley. Okay. Again, and I put some shit on him because, again, he sealed the deal for my son in the sense we're not going to call EMS for recruiters throwing up. Okay. 
And when the lieutenant colonel that was in charge of special training battalion came to my house with my son's belongings in a fucking box to give me his condolences and, and, and sit there and bullshit with me because he, I'm a Marine. He's a Marine. You know, he brought me a Marine Corps coin. No, I, you know, I, I thank you, but I want my son back. And I was courteous enough to listen to him and everything. And he was trying to be empathetic and sympathetic and I get it and I appreciate it. Good man. But he was part of the Marine Command Investigation Report that recommended no discipline to Captain McCulley. Captain McCulley was always a good man, came from a good family. That fucking stuck in my head. Like, hmm, what does he mean by that? Did a little, I did a little bit of research. University of Tennessee, when Captain McCulley was our uh, ROTC recruit, McCulley, the commanding officer at that time was Captain Lieutenant Captain Tracy Perry. Very incestuous relationship. To put, he's never going to blame his own boy. There's a story out by uh, that that was published uh, uh, by one of the writers of Dark Horse about the little black book that the Marine Corps officers carry and how they take care of their own. I, I, I'll send that to you, but it's. I mean, that proved the point right there. And then so how can how can you're talking about a, as a firefighter, hey, we have near misses and how are we going to prevent this from falling through the cracks? Well, hopefully you're having an independent agency come out and, and look at it, just like in a police shooting. You don't have the involved agency investigate their own shooting. You have the outside agency come in and do it. You have the DA's office. It doesn't happen in the Marine Corps. It doesn't happen in the Department of Defense. They take care of their own shit. And as a result, as a result of this, the day my son died on March 25th, 2018 at, at, uh, at, the, uh, at the hospital in San Diego, the Naval Hospital in San Diego, he dies there. He, he, he was found unresponsive in his bed without oxygen after he uh, aspirated what I believe is on his own vomit. He had thrown up so much that the recruits taking care of him had moved him three beds away. Changed his clothing, changed his, his linen, laid him on his back. It's written in the report. And then somehow I'm getting the call, being told that my son was found unresponsive in his bed, and we don't and we do not know how long he went. He's been without oxygen. I get to the ICU at the hospital with my wife. The doctor meets us and says, Mr. Vega, I'm so sorry your son's at, in the gravest condition that, that could be. And we do not know how long he went without oxygen. And like, where's this coming from? Guess what? From the 911 tape. The 911 tape says, hey, we don't know how long he's been without oxygen. So where the hell were the recruits taking care of? Where was the drill instructor? Nobody was taking care of my son. That's what happened to my son. But what happens there, that should have raised some fucking red flags. But what happens is that they transport my son to the hospital. He last about 36 hours on life support his body finally fails we head home without him and unbeknownst to us the hospital and i guess protocol and the hospital calls ncis calls the armed forces medical examiner system to notify them that an active duty service member has passed away and that's 
part of what I sent you. Okay, in that, I, and I, and I did not real, I did not know, I did not know that this one page, call it one paragraph memo existed from March twenty six, the one I, the one I emailed to you. That memo talks about my son having a history of septus, four incidents that led him to the ICU, admittance to the ICU. His death was medically expected, died of natural causes from an autoimmune condition. NCIS recommended no further autopsy and no further investigation. The day that my the day 24 hours after, if that, after my son died, case closed. Gone, swept under the rug. And I didn't know about that. I always thought or believed that NCIS, because I've worked with NCIS as a police officer, was actively doing a some sort of death investigation. They weren't. The only investigation that existed was within the Marine Corps, within the its command itself. And do you believe that the Marine Corps itself was going to fucking pass judgment on themselves? No. And I'll tell you why. Let's do that 30,000-foot view, okay? This is really important, that 30,000-foot view. Okay, Patrick Vega passes away March 25th, 2018. Hmm. I started looking at this. Captain Brandon McCulley says, well, we're not going to – we're not going to – we are not going to call EMS for one recruit is throwing up. Like, where does that come from? (laughs) If you look in the report, in the command investigation report, they're stupid enough to to mention the E. coli outbreak that had just ripped through Marine Corps recruit depot San Diego in 2017, late 2017. It was so bad that it sickened over 500 recruits. It was probably a group of about 20 that were severely ill. Talking brain damage, uh, organ failure, uh, degenerating hips. Okay, these these kids were. It almost killed them. Didn't kill anybody, but it almost killed them really bad. But a lot of them ended up in that medical rehab platoon that Captain McCulley was in charge of, and so they're taking care of sick recruits who are throwing up. So I took care of ten that were throwing up. Why got to? Why do I got to worry about one? Right. That's where that statement comes from. But what's interesting is that the Marine Corps, okay, the Marine Corps, their training and education command at the time was run by uh, three-star General Mullen. Okay, he was taking some hits because not only was, not only did the CDC come out and say, hey, Marine Corps recruit Depo San Diego is a cesspool, poor hygiene, uh, they're not cooking the meat all the way. And then, you know, and, and they cited all these things. They brought in the state. They brought in the county. They brought in big Navy medicine. Big issue for training and education command of the Marine Corps. Marine Corps doesn't like to get embarrassed. At the same time, at the same time this is going down, one month before Patrick died, you have a young recruit by the name of uh, Beckett Kernan. He just left boot camp reported to 29 Palms going to his first uh, class. He's still part of the training education command and he dies mysteriously of flesh eating disease. Okay. 
horrific story, horrific story. There is no report. The, the Marine Command investigation report on him is 27 pages long. I've, I've, I've seen it. His mom has shared it with me. NCIS never got involved. Uh, Navy Medical could not take care of him, and they transferred him by himself to Eisenhower Hospital, a civilian hospital in Palm Springs where he died. And the civilian doctors contacted his mom. And the mom can't get anything else from the Marine Corps, from NCIS, from Department of Defense, because they shut his case down. Okay, this is, again, going against Marine Command, uh, Marine Training and Education Command. Okay, at the same time, at the same time, Beckett's passing away. At this, during the week that Patrick is dying, you have a gunnery sergeant and a lieutenant colonel that are being court-martialed for the death of recruit Rahil Sadiqi at MCRD Paris Island. Rahil Sadiqi, he, he committed suicide, died by suicide in 2016. His drill instructor harassed this young recruit to the point where he jumped off the balcony. He actually, this, this drill instructor, this gunnery sergeant drill instructor, um, harassed him because he was Muslim. Prior to harassing him, he harassed two other recruits to the point where he actually stuck one of them into an industrial dryer and turned it on, tumbling the recruit. But guess what? That that gunnery sergeant never got never got held to answer because his lieutenant colonel that served with them in Iraq covered for him. But it all was falling apart on the week that Patrick was dying. This is that 30,000 foot view. You got severe illness that rips through Marine Corps recruit depot. You got a mysterious death of, you know, flesh hitting disease at 29 palms of a young man who just got out of recruit training. And you got a court martial that's taking place on a gunnery sergeant and a lieutenant colonel. Do you think that the Marine Corps Training and Education Command wanted one more fucking, you know, iron in the fire with Patrick Vega? No. So guess what? Somehow, miraculously, my son's case got swept under the rug. Well, I mean, it's so heartbreaking here. And obviously, when you mention some of the other incidents, that kind of leads us to, to the website. So firstly, talk about the resources that are available to people that they can learn more about this. And then how can they help? Is, is there any way that people listening can be part of the movement to make change? Absolutely. So making change. So again, my first Gump life, right? Um, so serving under former Commandant of the Marine Corps, General Dumfort, when he was a young captain, uh, in 2019, my wife and, and, and daughter, we, we were at Arlington and we bumped into General Dumfort, who is now the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And we actually... Uh, he remembered me. We talked. Uh, he invited us to the Pentagon to meet with them to tell them about Patrick. I was thinking, wow, we're going to get somewhere now. Um, we get to the Pentagon. We have about an hour and a half meeting with him where I take him down the rabbit hole, just like I, I've done to you, but in greater detail. His generals are coming into the office. They're, they're telling him, sir, we got to go. But here's the interesting part. At the time that he was the head of the Department of Defense, I presented him with factual information 
of a possible crime that occurred. And being the head of the Department of Defense, I think I made him a witness to a crime. I don't think he realized that. I think his generals did on the outside. But I, I'm very persistent. And I also know Admiral Mike Mullen, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's the guy that took out Osama bin Laden. I was so persistent that General Dunford sent Admiral Mullen here to my office to talk to my wife and I to figure out what we're trying to achieve and do. And I talked to these, I was talking to these, to these two men very often on the phone and so on, exchanging emails. I told them that I want accountability from top to bottom. Accountability needs to happen. And obviously both the general and the admiral are the system. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're part of the greatest tacticians that ever existed. And so at one point I, uh, I expressed to them that, Hey, I, I want to take this on. And, uh, I remember Admiral Mullen telling me, well, you know, you gotta be careful with this. I said, and, and me being cocky said, well, you know, Gen uh, Admiral, this is not my first, this is not my first mountain I climbed. You know, I did take on the Catholic church. And if anybody noticed that there's a Pope that finally stepped down because of all the child abuse. I want to say that at least I was part of that had an impact. And I said, so it's not my first mountain I climbed. And he looked at me square in the eyes and says, well, you're not climbing a mountain. You're climbing uh, Mount Vesuvius. So stop and think about that. Climbing a volcano. Eruption any minute could kill me, could do anything. So I took that as a, as a message. You know, so what can people do to help us? What people could do to help us we need to bring this topic front and center, okay? This topic here more recently was brought front and center by Maximilian Potter from Vanity Fair. I reached out to him. He wrote a, he wrote a piece 20 years ago, which did men mention the Ferris Doctrine, but he never went into de in depth about it. And I contacted him and said, hey, you know, your piece 20 years ago had a profound effect on me, but you know what? The Ferris Doctrine never changed. He came out of retirement, he told me, and, 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 and asked about the story that I have with Patrick. And he wrote about it here recently in Vanity Fair. And there's other stories attached to that. Number one is getting the word out there. Max helped us. You're going to help me. Uh, people that hear this, share it. Because it's I, I call it the best kept open military secret since 1950. It is right there in your face. I have uh, become part of the American Legion. They are the largest veteran service organization, 2 million members. They have a permanent presence presence in Washington, D.C. They're constantly lobbying and changing, you know, putting the best uh, forward for our veterans and for our service members when it comes to benefits and, 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 and other issues. And so I've been talking to their leadership. Hey, we got to change this. And guess what? You're finally listening. And it's incredible because, you know, here you got the American Legion. And I would say 99% of those men there and women have never heard of the Ferris Doctrine. So I've been educating them slowly. You've never heard of it. I'm sure a lot of your listeners have never heard of it. But please go on our website. Open up the page. Go to saveourservicemembers.org. Look at the Ferris Doctrine. Read about it. Understand it. 
look at the deaths. You know, we're we're advocating for positive change. You know, laws to better protect our service members. The big one, the big one that 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 we that I'm trying to push so hard, so hard, is to finally get Congress to define incident to service. We need Congress to take a moment and say, hey, what we wrote, what we what we voted on, ratified and approved back in 1946, right? That Federal Torch Claim Act, what's been codified over 72 years in written language, Congress needs to nod their head in unison and say, yeah, that's what we meant. Supreme Court, you guys, even the... Even uh, Clarence Thomas, uh, current justice, says those, there's been about eight cases that have gone up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And he says Ferris, the Ferris Doctrine is screwed up, but we already screwed it up once. We don't need to touch it. The Supreme Court needs to touch it. I mean, excuse me, the Congress needs to touch it, needs to fix it. That's what I'm asking for. Contact your representatives, those that have representatives that are part of the House Armed Services Committee. That's where it starts, because the House Armed Services Committee are the ones that can introduce a bill to change this. Beautiful. Um, yeah, I mean, and I'm sorry if it's long-winded and everything, but it's a very, very involved, you know, tricky thing that, that's happening. I mentioned the PACT Act at the very beginning. What's crazy about the PACT Act is that they actually used language from 1946. They inserted it into the PACT Act that was recently passed, right? That as long as you're in non-combat, you could sue incident to service. Well, what they inadvertently did is that they're going to allow military lawyers to, to define what incident to service means before we have an opportunity to define it. That is the danger in that. And then, and then what's, what's also going to screw this up is that the biggest the biggest person who's opposed the, the the biggest person opposed to changing the Ferris doctrine is Lindsey Graham, great Republican. Okay, he's a former Jet Air Force JAG officer. He does not want to change anything to change with the Ferris doctrine because he does not want to open up Pandora's box. He says that the death benefit, which is a hundred thousand dollars. The service group life insurance, which is $400,000, should be enough for a family to uh, be, be uh, financially settled with. That's the form. That's the government's form of workers' compensation. But I call that bullshit because if you get in the car, you get killed. Well, guess what? Uh, your family's still going to get their life insurance. You're still going to get the liability insurance from the insurance company. But then you still have an opportunity to take that negligent person to court. And, and, and either, again, sue them, sue that company, if it's UPS, Federal Express, that killed your, your loved one. You know, there's still that. In the military, you don't have that. You don't get that opportunity. But Lindsey Graham is the biggest opponent to this, and I hope he changes his mind. Well, Manny, I just want to say thank you. I mean, firstly, the second half of this interview, obviously you told Patrick's story, but interwoven in that is a huge lesson for us. And it took, I mean, it's taken over three hours to tell the story because it needs to be told properly. The first part, I mean, you, your 
courage and vulnerability of some of the areas that you touched on is equally as important, you know, and I think it sets up who you are before we then got into, you know, this fight that you're fighting now. So I just want to thank you not only for all the things you have done for this country and, and just, you know, offer my condolences for, for the loss of your son, but I hope this is one tiny piece of the puzzle as you were in, in the, you know, the, the case against the Catholic Church of trying to bring this to light. You've educated me, you know, obviously Max was educated about it. Hopefully he's going to be coming on as well, but try and start educating people and get them to the point where they push this particular thing. If we're, if we're having conversations about, you know, transgenderism and, and sexual identity and, some important topics, then we need to put as much gusto into taking care of our veterans. Well, not even our veterans, those who give us freedom. Again, these, these three hours that we spent talking freely on the blood, sweat, and tears of those who are the least protected. And, and let me finish with one thing. And this is hard. You know, you got to remember the dead, the dead, that includes my son. That includes all those other young Marines that I saw die. I had some die Mars. They don't have a voice. They don't have a voice. We have to be their voice for change. We have to change this. If we don't, if we don't change this, then we're complacent and we are, we are, li- we are living a free American life on the backs of second class citizens. That is, that is a, that is fucked up. It's so difficult for me to go to functions where everybody stands up, puts your hands on their chest, and they pledge allegiance, and then they thank, you know, let's let's give grace and thanks to all our service members and bullshit. Let's fix the Ferris doctor. Really. I mean, just stop and think. Lieutenant Rudolph Ferris, World War II hero, greatest generation. He's been bastardized for 72 years. Let's change it to what it should be called, the not the military non-accountability doctrine. That's what it should be. Let this man rest in peace. If anything, if anything, I want to change that. And then again, he's dead. He doesn't have a voice. I got to be his voice. This week, as we celebrate Thanksgiving, I am boxing up my son's room because we got company coming. As soon as I leave here, I got to go home and I got to bring some packaging tape for the boxes where I'm going to put my son's stuff. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. You know, I got to put my son's stuff away. It's uh, mind boggling. Thank you for your time, James. 